Hello, you're listening to Of Truth, the only Wonder Woman podcast on iTunes. The only show devoted to Diana of Themyscira. I'm your host, Nick Antoine. This is going to be fun. Old business. How in the world could there be old business? We just got here. New business. Although this show is hosted by a male, and will be the male perspective, it won't be male-centric. It will be all-inclusive, because humanity involves two genders. Now, on with the show. Wonder Woman number one, The Visitation, written by Brian Azzarello. Cliff Chiang provided the pencils and the inks for both the cover and all of the interior art, and he will do so for the foreseeable future. Jared K. Fletcher took care of all the lettering. Chris Conroy was the associate editor, whilst Matt Idelson was the main editor. Wonder Woman herself was the brainchild of William Moulton Marston, as well as in conception by his wife Elizabeth Holloway Marston and their mutual lover, Olive Byrne. Alrighty. Now before we get into some of the backstory of the creator of this character, before we even get into the character themselves, I want to get into something that uh, was alluded to over in Darker Corners. This is a zipper. Got a new mic setup going on here, so <laughs> henceforth all the podcasts are going to have this kind of clarity. Thank the stars, right? I had spoken about uh, this particular title, Of Truth, and, and what it could mean. Now, in all honesty, it stemmed from two places. The original idea, you have to excuse me, I'm disrobing. The original idea stemmed from uh, the, the credo that is more closely associated with Superman. That he stands for truth, justice, and the American way. I thought about that because that was kind of a, a staple that had been around really since the 50s, if not the 40s, um, if not since its in inception in the, in the late 30s. Uh, it, it seemed to me that the Trinity over at DC Comics uh, really embodied those three concepts. Truth being Wonder Woman, Justice being Batman, and the American way being Superman. Now I'm sure that's been touched upon pre-Flashpoint. So some of you that are listening to this are like, oh, come on, man, we've we've heard all that spiel before. But that's that's where the thought process started. I was like, oh, okay, when I was thinking about a title for the show, I was like, oh, you know, this would, this would be kind of interesting, you know, to play with that idea that, you know, we're, we're focusing on in this particular podcast on the, ca the, the characteristics of truth and or just the character of Wonder Woman herself. As well, I had a couple other rejected titles. Uh, there was uh, By the Goddess, and I figured, you know, that might be a little bit too on the nose, or it might seem like it's uh, like, a, like a, a weird, negative form of commentary towards feminism. So I figured, no, I'm not going to do that, because that's not the intention of this show. And then I also thought about From Marston with Love, and I was like, ah, there's no reason to do puns. Uh, not not in the title, <laughs> of course, as bad jokes strewn throughout the entire show. Yes, that's that's a mainstay. 
but the titles of these different shows, I like them to be as specific as possible, uh, to, to, to hone in on what the meaning of it all is. Um, so as I've stated, and you know, I'll get to that uh, a little bit later, I'm going to be getting into that idea of, uh, uh, feminism and what the reverse side of that is. But when I started going deeper and started pulling from the recesses of my own, um, my own scholastic upbringing at uh, Baruch in New York, in Manhattan, beautiful college, beautiful college, Baruch College, amazing. I, I thought about uh, some essays that I wrote, <laughs> that I wrote, <laughs> of course I didn't, uh, some essays that I read by Francis Bacon, um, and specifically the essays. The first book, or the first, the first essay itself, as it were, because you know it's a, it's an entire book. It's got, I think it's about. I'm not even gonna guess the number, because I was gonna say it's about thirty. I can't recollect exactly how many there were, but I knew what to look for because I remember having seen this. Uh, they're all they all have different titles, you know, like uh, of of death. You know, there's, there's just so many different titles, but they all start with of. The first one being of truth. And there were two quotes that were in it that I had remembered, but had had a vague recollection of, and I studied up on it again just to have a refresher course. And and this is this is where they stem from. This is the, not only all the other titles that I've kind of started to settle on, excluding the other two that I've just mentioned, but those are more of the final titles. Uh, but this, the one that actually got used for this show, and I quote. It is not only the difficulty and labor which men take in finding out of truth, but a natural, though corrupt, love of the lie itself. I I remember reading that, uh, as, as I stated before, starting when I went to college at 24, spent quite a few years partying because it was Manhattan, it was the thing to do. Uh, perhaps too long, perhaps not. I was traveling, I was going on my own odyssey, as it were trying to find myself and reconcile the degradation of my own kingdom. Perhaps to return and rebuild it. Who knows? I I remember that having a profound impact on me, even though it's at the very beginning, of course, past the introduction and, and, and past the, the, the prerequisite things that you would find in the beginning of a book. It's, it's really the first page, um, the first page of those essays. I realize, you know, that that really is the fun of it all. You know, yes, it's it's thoroughly enjoyable to tell a lie, but it's even more enjoyable to stand apart from all of the choices that you can make that can be considered lies, and instead try and just get at the root of it all. Try and just be as truthful as possible. It 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 genuinely allows for the truth teller to feel high and mighty. You don't feel good about lying. You, It feels good, but you don't feel good. Seems like semantics, but it feels good to get away with whatever lie you tell. But sitting and stewing on the truth of the matter, which is that you are not being as open and honest as you could be, whether it's in business affairs or in personal affairs, um, it, it does eat at you as a human being, whether it's for a scant second or for years at a time. Uh, so it, I remember, I, I genuinely remember that passage. That's that's a, a truncated 
quotation, mind you. There's more to that quotation. That's, for the most part, the, the bookend uh, of that quote. But, you know, it, it had the phrase of truth in it, uh, as well as being from that particular essay itself. So I was like, okay, all right, that's that's where my subconscious was going. But then I had remembered that there was this, that the, the continuation of that particular essay is what truly, truly struck me. Um, not only then, but now when I had settled upon this particular title when it came to the show. And I quote, It is a pleasure to stand upon the shore and to see ships tossed upon the sea. A pleasure to stand in the window of a castle and to see a battle and the adventures thereof below. But no pleasure is comparable to this standing upon the vantage ground of truth and to see the errors and wanderings and mists and tempests in the vale below. And that's, that's a quote. It's within these essays, but it's a quote deliberately taken from Titus Lucretius. Uh, his his um, compendium or, 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 or writings entitled De Rerum Natura, spelled, you know, D-E space R-E-R-U-M space N-A-T-U-R-A. That that just only solidifies that, that, um, that thought process that I had already had and had uh, uh, reaffirmed, or I guess affirmed, no, reaffirmed through the annals of history from the 16, if I'm not saying the late 1600s to myself, um, I believe it was 1692. I believe that's when the essays were written. Could be wrong. And if I am wrong, you know, you can email the show <laughs> of truthpod at gmail.com. Um, the idea that it feels even better to be as truthful as possible because you're doing, you're doing the easier thing. It's difficult to have a, an, to have an intricate web of lies to maintain a facade of a lifestyle that you believe others approve of. It's very easy to be truthful and to unfortunately as well come off as somewhat brash or stalwart or abrasive. But it's easier to live that way because then you don't have to remember what you said in a previous occasion. You're just relaying whatever truth that situation dictates. So that, that for the most part, actually in totality, is where the title of this particular show comes from, of truth. Um, of course, there's the phrase moment of truth, which is um, usually attributed to uh, when a matador it goes in for the kill uh, with a bull or, you know, a profound, this is just a regular Merriam-Webster definition or the, the profound uh, moment. I should never use the word in the definition. Um, it's that instance when you realize um, uh, the, the actuality. There you go. <laughs> Using synonyms to define a phrase, um, the moment of truth. You're going up against some form of, of uh, adversarial aggression, something on the other side of your particular opinion or your stance or in your way of life, uh, whether it's the journey you're going down or just a belief you hold and you're standing still in, in the middle of making a decision. 
the moment of truth is when you make that decision and say to yourself, this is the thing that is, that the, this is the best course of action for me as an individual, or this is the best course of action for a group of people. But it's usually just attributed to an individual. But I'm starting to digress. Uh, the meaning of the show, more attributed to Francis Bacon and uh, to Titus. Titus Lucretius. If I'm not mistaken, that was written in 92 AD. But again, I, I, I could be very wrong with that. I could be very wrong. Um, I'm usually more correct on philosophy and the words, you know, the, the texts that are being referred to or written uh, as opposed to the, the precise dates, which, is, which isn't a good thing. I think you should have both hand in hand when it comes to uh, having recall. It, it allows you to go down the path of attaining total recall, which is, which is what we should all be aiming for. <laughs> of course, no, I'm not referring to the Mars epic by Paul Verhoeven, starring, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Maria Conchita Alonso and Arnold Schwarzenegger, nor am I talking about the version starring Colin Farrell and Kate Beckinsale, I'm talking about the ability uh, as a human to remember every aspect of a situation in, in exact detail, as if you're living in the past, as if it were the present, as if you're describing something that you're standing within. Um, but yes, to move, to move forward, this character, I've, I've since childhood had a fascination with Wonder Woman, um, not as I've stated over on Darker Corners, not not as a, uh, being able to relate to the character the way that I relate to John Constantine primarily or to Superman secondarily um, as a character, as, as a model of this is what you should or shouldn't do in life when you're interacting with other human beings. On top of other things, you know, of course, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, um, Abraham to a certain extent, Muhammad, the Buddha, the Dalai Lama, you know, I look at all these different symbols of righteousness in society, whether they be considered mythologies or religions or just beliefs. I look at those and say, okay, that's a good way to treat people when your natural incl inclination is to be as selfish as possible. Um, I was fascinated by this uh, personification that, that fell into the same Parthenon, you know, really outside of the expected traits of a deity and and closer to humanity the way that prophets are this this character the character of diana uh is is more of a prophet than a goddess even though she is well i don't want to i don't want to spoil anything down the line when this podcast is being recorded issue 35 is actually coming out today that's uh spoiling it for everyone you will be getting this episode, I'm sure, uh, on Wednesdays. That should be when you be, would be getting these episodes on Wednesdays. Um, but um, there's a lot that's gone on <laughs> in the graphic novels. It's amazing. But I'm referring to um, Future's End, Wonder Woman Future's End, which takes place, if I'm not mistaken, five years after this current era, uh, which would be like 2019. Um, but she's she's more of an individual that has godlike tendencies and perhaps even godlike qualities in the eyes of humanity. 
but at, at their heart, they are just a human being and they can be um, decimated. But really at their own choosing, when they choose to become a martyr for their own cause, which is for the most part the, the prophecy of a prophet, the, the final fate of one who is considered prophetic, that they are only dying because it is their time to die as opposed to most of humanity, where the, the assumption is, um, though there may be fate or there may be destiny, there are as well accidents. Um, and just accidents from the perception of the, the humans around the scenario. But in the grand scheme of things, it's all fate, it's all destiny. But again, it's just other people's perceptions. The perception of the prophet is that they cannot be, um, they cannot succumb to the veil, the final cloak of night that is death until it is their time. It kind of puts them on a, on a higher plane of, of reverence in the eyes of most. Um, again, like a, a Muhammad or a Jesus or an Abraham or a Moses or a King David or a King Solomon, or like I said, the Buddha, Dalai Lama, um, the, the Brahmin, the, the aspects of the Brahmin, uh, Shiva, um, why am I blanking on the rest of them? I apologize. There's five of them in total, five of the Brahmin. I've mentioned this, unfortunately, too many times, to the point where it makes it seem like that's all I know about it, but I'm trying to keep this on a particular path because we're going to a particular Parthenon with this podcast. We're not going to be talking, for the most part, uh, in a great deal about other religions or other societies. It's going to stick to one philosophy, one group of philosophers and, and, and one group of um, anthropomorphized goddesses and gods. Um, but where this all stems from, fascinatingly enough, is the creator and, and his, his, his life as it were. Uh, his name, William Moulton Marston, um, died quite a long time ago. Born in 1893, died um, about a week before his death in 1947. It was May 9th to May 2nd. That was a horrible way to tell dates, but you know that shows you where my mindset is. Um, again, uh, I, I use very heavily the Holy Triumvirate of the internet, two of those being Google and Wikipedia. This is an ongoing Easter egg slash inside joke that I have, as of yet, disclosed the third aspect of the triumvirate, but that's a secret that I'm keeping. But as it were, although he, norm he every now and again went by his pen name Charles Moulton, which was a pastiche of his middle name and the middle name of one of his um, contemporaries, we'll get to that in a little bit, uh, he was a psychologist, American psychologist, a comic book writer, and an inventor. There were, as I stated earlier, two women that formed a triumvirate in his life. Those individuals were Elizabeth Holloway Marston and Olive Byrne. Elizabeth Holloway Marston was his wife, his legal wife. Um, the individual that, you know, he, he had betrothed himself to for until his dying breath, um, which, which came at, at the hand of uh, cancer, specifically skin cancer. Uh, one would assume melanoma or, or, or a malignant form of it. Um, but there was also Olive Byrne. Olive Byrne um, initially 
from reports that I've read, uh, began her relationship with them as a business one. She was a secretary, a personal secretary for the two of them. Um, uh, Elizabeth uh, Holloway Marston herself, although her husband was uh, an inventor and the later part of his life a comic book writer, as well as a, a philosopher and holding a doctorate uh, by the age of, um, if I'm not mistaken, 29? When did when did he get it? Excuse me, uh, 1893. Uh, he got it in 1921, so that would place him at 28. So look at that. Had his doctorate three years before my current age. There you go. Um, she she was a psychologist in her own right. Uh, she had the same year that he uh, received his uh, masters. I, I take that back. When he received his bachelor's, correct? No, his PhD. He received his PhD from Harvard. Got his BA, his LLB, and his PhD from Harvard. Um, and his PhD culminated in 1921. Her uh, master's in psychology, a master's of the arts in psychology, uh, was from Radcliffe College in 1921. Uh, she, as I said, she was an American psychologist and she was, quote, unquote, one of three women to graduate from the School of Law that year. And as she later, later stated, quote, I finished the Massachusetts bar exam in nothing flat and had to go out and sit on the stairs waiting for Bill Marston and another Harvard man to finish. Quite literally, she took the bar exam with her husband. Uh, their, their intelligence uh, rivaled one another and they and they clearly had a high level of respect for each other's not only um, ability to retain information and use it in a positive light but just each other's company I've, I've yet to find anything online that states that they had some kind of tumultuous relationship uh, she is credited uh, for writing a book with both C. Daly King and her husband uh, William Moulton Marston, uh, in writing Integrative Psychology, a Study of Unit Response. Um, she was quoted, um, I will state here, uh, her 1993 obituary stated that she was the inspiration for one woman, and I'll get to that in a little bit. It also quoted her son Pete as stating that Marston had told William, she had told her husband, after he was asked to develop a new superhero in the 19, in early 1940s. She said, and I quote, come on, let's have a superwoman. There's too many men out there. Uh, as it's noted in the Boston University Alumni Magazine, quote, William Moulton Marston, a psychologist already famous for inventing the polygraph, struck upon an idea of a new, for a new kind of superhero, one who would triumph not with fists or power, firepower, but with love. And what I was going to get to later, it was quoted by her as saying, fine, said Elizabeth, but make her a woman. She not only contributed to uh, so many aspects of Wonder Woman, uh, not only her physical form, but her, her personality, um, dually with Olive Byrne, uh, but as well her, her catchphrases, you know, um, how you know, different people, different characters are known for things, you know, like Hulk smash or, you know, something, something Batman, you know, if it's uh, Robin in the 60s, you know, like 
holy cow, Batman, you know, a phrase that somebody's known for. She was one woman was known for both suffering Sappho. And Sappho is, uh, well, you can do your own research into that. It's quite, quite intriguing. And great Hera. Those are two phrases that she was known for. But that, that makes it seem as if I'm belittling her as an individual. And I'm not, you know, at all. I'm, I'm showing that they were very much exactly on the same playing field. They went to each other uh, in conference on a regular basis um, for ideas and ways to improve not only themselves but each other. Uh, a fascinating way to look at a relationship because they were so enamored with every aspect of each other that they opened up probably to a level or to a degree that most of us are not even aware of because we're, we are so hung up our, on our own personal apprehensions, not so much the ones that society hoists upon, our, uh, upon us. So much so that uh, they ended up uh, bringing uh, Miss Byrne, Miss Olive Byrne, into their life and made it an, as it's stated here, a quote-unquote extended relationship where the three of them lived together and shared not each, not only each other physically, but mentally and emotionally, and if you want to go there, spiritually. Uh, they, they were a, a total relationship. There was no un, uh, semblance of an unbalance. It, it was, as I spoke about in... Where, where did I speak about this? I spoke about this in Bennett and the Queen on the episode Gouge Away, about uh, Eustitia, the Roman... Uh, embodiment of justice that we see uh, depicted in statues and paintings. Uh, we normally think about justice with the scales, and they're usually uh, tipped in one way, shape, or form, and justice is blind. But the entire form of justice, the, the proper form, is to have the scales in her left hand and a sword in her right. Because reason are the scales, and justice is the sword. This, this idea that the three of them could all see each other as equals, not having it where there's, you know, as it were, some mistress that comes in and is there to just pleasure the, the wife or just to pleasure the husband or um, is, is a, a secret being kept from the husband or being kept from the wife. They all live together. And, and they had such an intimate relationship that they lived out each other's lives respectively, as it were. Um, up until his death, all three of them had lived together. And I'm trying to find exactly where it is because I had read it somewhere else. But, um, okay, so I'm just going to uh, paraphrase here. Uh, they All three of them had lived together. And... Uh, up until his death in 1947 and then as 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 a detractor would assume that um, Elizabeth and Olive trying to get everybody's uh, first names correct here Elizabeth and Olive would have separated that's that's what detractors would automatically assume that oh well this must all be about the man that was not the case at all uh, the two of them ended up staying together, living together, uh, continuing to enjoy each other's company as, as respectful human beings up until Allah's death. 
Yes, here we go. Uh, William Moulton Marston died of cancer May 2nd, 1947 in Rye, New York, seven days shy of his 54th birthday. After his death, Elizabeth and Olive continued to live together until Olive's death in the late 80s. And Elizabeth died a few years later in 1993 at the age of 100. The three of these people loved each other. And they loved each other in a way that quite usually is only reserved for the philosophic beliefs of what love is. That it's more than just uh, this, um, this, I don't want to say an antiquated notion, but an, an, a, a not totally understood belief of sacrificing time or sacrificing your emotion for the time or attention of another. There are so many different permutations of the word love in other languages, and yet once you get to English, you just got the one. And people will throw it around. Oh, I love that book, or I love that movie, or I love that person, or I'm in love with that person. Um, and then they kind of just have it as the same word for varying degrees. But there really are vast differences uh, between the types of love you can have for an object, or for a memory, or for a person, or for an intimate partner, or for a friend, or for a business associate. Um, and the idea that they would all have to be separate, it seems to me, is something that's a little bit more um, new world, as it were. I don't want to say American, but new world, uh, than it is uh, truthful or healthy. You should be able to love an individual in more ways than one in order for it to be something that could be seen as a healthy relationship, not from individuals on the outside of the relationship, but uh, by the participants, whether it be the people who share the utmost versions of all those permutations of love uh, or people that are effect directly affected by it, you know, children or other family members who get the outpouring of excess love. Uh, you know, hugs, attention, conversations, uh, gifts, you know, all that's all of that is a part of love because it's all a, a sacrifice in one way, shape or form, but not just of time or um, attention. There, there's a lot there and it's and it's quite fascinating. Now, one could assume that perhaps I, I've gone too far into their personal lives. Um, these these three individuals, uh, no, it, it, on the contrary, it's very necessary to understand where Wonder Woman came from, this character. Um, that's their personal lives. When it comes to uh, his, his the business side of his life, um, Mr. Marston, uh, he, he ended up creating what was known as the systolic blood pressure test, which ended up becoming a component of the modern polygraph or a lie detector. Uh, there's, there's, some, there's some contention uh, amongst scholars as to whether the lie detector is a direct allegory to the lasso of truth. And as a side note, no. The name of this show has nothing to do with the lasso of truth. That's supposed to make people believe that that's the case, but then they listen in to this first episode and find out that it is far from it. Far from the truth. <laughs> Sorry, see, I told you, bad puns everywhere. 
What's fascinating is, and I quote, Marston's wife, Elizabeth, uh, is said to have suggested a connection between emotion and blood pressure to William, observing that, quote, when she got mad or excited, her blood pressure seemed to climb. Although she is not listed as Marston's collaborator in his early work, Lamb, uh, which was um, just another scholar, uh, Matthay, in 1996, and others referred directly and indirectly to Elizabeth's own work on her husband's research. She also appears in a picture taken in, in his laboratory in the 20s, which that picture ended up being reproduced by Marston in 1938. Uh, an in intriguing side note, he ended up uh, attempting to commercialize the invention made by John Augustus Larson, the, the specific modern version of the polygraph, um, he wanted to commercialize it uh, by embarking on a career in entertainment and appearing as a salesman in ads for Gillette, you know, the razor company, uh, using a polygraph motif. But again, even though there is some form of a, a correlation between uh, binding an individual with wires, as it were, with copper wires, and asking them questions, there's a difference between the two. Whereas with the polygraph, it's not like, oh, what's the, the, the drug I'm thinking about? I keep thinking. <laughs> I keep thinking laudanum, and that's only because I saw Interview with the Vampire recently. Um, and it's not epinephrine. Oh, man. It begins with a P. Email the show of Truth Pod, if you know what it is. There's a... a something that's used as a truth, uh, a component of a truth serum. It's potassium something. Obviously not potassium sulfate, because I believe that would be harmful for your bloodstream. And it's not potassium oxalate, so we were talking about in a previous episode of uh, Darker Corners um, to Monsters. Uh, but it's a potassium derivative, or, or a potassium mixture uh, that is used. I feel like potassium... Magnesium, not, I'm not sure. Maybe cesium. No, I can't be right. I think I believe that's radioactive. Anyway, um, a, a lie detector itself, an individual can beat a lie detector test. If you don't believe that, watch Psych. <laughs> that's right, son. Come on, son. Um, or, or, you know, real life, uh, just by keeping your blood pressure or, or your, your, um, your pulse rate uh, steady. Because apprehension and nervousness causes a change in, in your blood pressure, in, in the speed in which your heart pumps blood. For the most part, because your brain is either thinking or hesitating, it thusly needs more oxygen to allow the synapses to fire more frequently. In order to do so, more blood must be pumped to that area. Hokily dokily. When it comes to the lasso of truth in the mythology of Wonder Woman, there is no ability for the lassoed to lie. You are compelled to tell the truth. Uh, and not just because of a, a fear of being subdued, so much as it having some form of a metaphysical property that has been explained in one way, shape, or form pre-Flashpoint to varying degrees. I don't necessarily get into that uh, here especially because uh, it's used more of more as a, a, um, an indestructible lasso uh, in, in the series, at the very least in this first issue. 
uh, but we will get to that a little bit later. Um, Marsden was had popular, popularized a theory in a book uh, that he that he wrote twenty eight nights twenty emotions of normal people, which had elaborated on the disc theory. He believed that people behave along two axes, an X and Y axis, just think like a plus sign, and that their attention is either passive or active. They're either being, they're actively doing something or they're passively allowing something to happen to them. And for the most part, it depends on whether they believe where they are is something that's good for them or something that's bad for them. His idea was by properly understanding who needs to be a leader in society in society and who needs to be a follower that an individual can be placed in a situation that if whether they're knowledgeable about it or not is a situation that is rooted in love rooted in compassion and and may have some form of pain involved it, it may be a painful ordeal to come to that rec recognition that understanding that reconciliation with the self that you are submitting an aspect of your will, not the totality of your life, but just your, perhaps your belief that you are right in that situation to, to come to the, to the understanding that perhaps you are wrong. Here is why. Here's a better way to do things. To accept that is a better way to live life than to just keep pushing forward. Like, no, I must be right. I must be right. I must be right. And that's whether male or female. That that's across the gender lines. Um, the only reason why I didn't ha have a proper, I guess I do have an addendum here right now. The reason why at the beginning of this show I didn't say across all the genders and I said the two genders is because for the most part, um, people end up settling on either male or female. Their sexual proclivities are a whole other situation. But when you talk about um, the genders that exist on the planet, you know, in the in the human species, there is male, female, and in essence, transgender. But when you're talking about the sex, the 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 specific sex, not when you have sex, but the gender, the genitalia, uh, when you talk about the reproductive organs of a human being in the present, uh, you're not taking into account what it was in the past, or what it may be in the future. So an individual who is transgender, and specifically an individual that is post-op, is whatever gender they currently are. So if they were male became and then had surgery and became female, they are a female. If they were female, had surgery, became a male, then they are a male. You don't say, oh, well, they're both male and female. That's insulting to them as an individual. And again, what your gender is has absolutely nothing to do with who you decide to lay with, whether it be in the cover of night in your abode, or it be in an open field. <laughs> I don't know why I went there. <laughs> Wherever you have sex, doesn't matter. Um, what gender you are really doesn't matter. But for the most part, there is male and female. Until we figure something else out where perhaps uh, uh, hermaphrodites become more prevalent and we have to solidify a specific third gender um, hermaphrodite. Uh, because it's there's such a low prevalency of it in society. As far as we know, I mean, there could be a plethora of hermaphrodites in society, and because it's not, for whatever reason, un and unfortunately, socially acceptable, uh, we don't know as much about it. But there could be it could be an instance where it's, you know, one in five people that you meet 
are hermaphrodites and they have both genitalia. Um, but as far as I know, the occurrence is far smaller than that. That being the case, that seems like discrimination. It still seems like I'm being discriminatory in a flippant way or, or in a passive way. And I don't want that to be the case. So there are two clearly defined genders or, or two socially acceptable genders, but clearly defined, I guess there would be three genders, male, female, and hermaphrodite, uh, when it comes to your present gender. Yes, end of addendum. <laughs> but this disc theory, again, this, uh, this axis uh, that is split by an X and a Y, uh, or, or rather this graph that's split by an X and a Y axis looks like a plus. You have these four quadrants, and for the most part, it goes with disc theory. Uh, it's a, um, gosh darn it, I'm always messing this up. Uh, an amalgam? It's like all, I have this beautiful lexicon, and I'm always messing up these words that are descriptors for larger things. Uh, but where the first letter spells out uh, another word, you know what I'm saying here. Uh, you have one, one corner, dominance, produces activity in an, as it were, unfavorable environment. This is again for the person. Inducement produces activity in a favorable environment. Submission produces passivity in a favorable environment. And compliance produces passivity in an antagonistic environment or an unfavorable one. As it were, if you were looking at this plus sign, last time I saw this graph, uh, the bottom left is the D, the top left is excuse me, the I, the top right is the S, and bottom right is the C. So, you know, going clockwise from the bottom left, dominance, inducement, submission, compliance. In this graph, in this disc theory, the idea is that you would want to be in the top right graph, and every now and again be in the top left graph, like out of necessity, go into the top left graph. So an in instance, if you have to make an active choice as the leader, whether male or female, you would use inducement. You would induce the individual into doing the activity that you want them to do. That way they feel comfortable, i.e. as if they're in a favorable environment. In the top right part of the graph, the idea is you would um, try and uh, bring about submission. Even though you would think, oh, that's not what you want. It's like, no, in any case, any any conversation, any agreement that needs to be made, you want one individual to in one way, shape or form capitulate, but to feel good about it. It has to be something that seems like it's passive aggressive, but without any aggressivity. Saying, hey, look, these are all the options that I have. Which one would you like to take? In essence, that's really what you're doing. Every transaction that you go through when you're exchanging cash, when you're exchanging currency is submission bottom line. And it's not submission by you inherently. It's offering submission by the vendor. So for instance, let's say you go to a target. They are putting on front street. They're saying, look, these are all the services that we can provide for you. These are all the things we can sell you. Take your pick. But you can't come to us and say, oh, we want this or we want that. It's not going to happen. That in essence is the, the purpose behind a corporation. If you were to go to a mom and pop shop, whatever store it is, you know, just a regular, uh, let's just say a regular um, hardware store, and you want a, a particular type of wood, you know, you want um, uh, beech wood, B-E-E-C-H, um, 
That sounds wrong. I think it's birchwood, and I'm thinking of a beech nut. But it must come from a tree. No, nuts grow in the ground. No, legumes grow in the ground. Nuts grow on trees, bushes. I'm clearly not a horticulturist. I dabble in agriculture, but my digressions are falling into a pit of um, ineloquent despair. <laughs> Uh, but if you were to go into that hardware store and say, hey, look, uh, I need some balsa wood. There we go. Um, I'm building a model set for my kids. And they're like, oh, we don't uh, carry that, but we can get that for you. That's submission on their part. They are the ones having to submit. They're not offering the 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 ideal of submission on you, having to submit to the fact that they only have the goods that they're able to sell you. Um why is, does this matter? It doesn't mean that one is better than the other. Not at all. What it means is the more responsibility you have as a leader, not a boss. There's a big difference. A boss, in essence, and I saw this in a, in a pictograph, as it were, a boss is the individual on the chair whipping the individuals who are pulling the throne along. A leader gets off the pedestal, gets in front of everybody, and takes on as much of the weight as possible and drags the throne along with everybody else, gets in the fray. The idea of a second lieutenant or a first lieutenant on the battlefield, you know, a commissioned officer on the battlefield with enlisted personnel, that's a leader. The boss, as it were, are the generals, the admirals who are somewhere else off the battlefield, uh, the ones dictating where everyone must go. It doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean one is better than the other, it just means that there's a very big difference in, in responsibilities. And, and when it comes to perceptions and levels of respect uh, up and down the chain of command. So, if you are, like in this case, uh, a corporation, you know, like a target, um, it's better for you as a company to offer a passive form of submission by your customers that you only offer these things, this is what you offer on a regular basis, and every now and again, i.e. a Black Friday or Valentine's Day or a Mother's Day or a Father's Day, uh, you're offering these other things, perhaps a new item or just the same items, but at a discounted price. It gives people the feeling of getting something that they feel they deserve or maybe they feel like they don't deserve it, but they're happy to get it. That's the ideal in an enlightened society. You're going to have individuals who are going to feel like when it comes to personal freedoms, and again, that's men or women, that their personal freedoms uh, supersede the will and the whims of the rest of society, the other individuals. That can never be the case. You cannot have, as, we, as it stands now, seven and a half billion people on the planet all doing exactly what they want to do. If everybody did exactly what they wanted to do at every moment, society would crumble. Because unfortunately, there would be no organization. Now, that that theory, as it were, that's not my theory, it's many theories uh, homogenized into one, it, it kind of presupposes that there isn't any instantaneous communication betwixt the masses, uh, i.e. Twitter and, and uh, you know, Tumblr, you know, I, I'll use those, or, yeah, Twitter and Tumblr, because Vine... Eh, there's no real central posting, as it were. You can have a Vine account, but it just goes on for days and there isn't proper searching. That makes it sound like I'm coming down to Vine. Vine's awesome. Um, as, as, a, as an outlet for frustrations uh, and quick jokes, hilarity, as it were. Um, of course, not the be-all, end-all, just like Twitter isn't the be-all, end-all for verbal communication, or I guess textual communication. 
but it's a great way to spread information quickly. Just look at the uh, the Arab Spring in Egypt. Just look at the the current situation. Well, it's current again. They're they're having another uprising, and we're in October, late October, twenty fourteen. Uh, but look at uh, Syria, and the way they've been able to get information out. Uh, Palestine, Palestinians. If this was nineteen ninety four, we would hear almost nothing from that side of that particular conflict. We would only hear something from the other side of the conflict, and that's never good in any battle. You know, just think, World War Two. If all we did was get information about what the Axis powers were doing. Um, let's get this right, Nick. Germany, Italy, damn it, Russia. Yes? I know it's obvious, it's three. There's, there, there were more associated, but there were three at most. Uh, because with America, the, the Allied powers, it was the United States, the United Kingdom, and France. Um, and, and a bunch of other countries, but I'm trying to think. I know specifically Germany and Italy because of Hitler and Mussolini, but I feel like Stalin was clearly a part of it. But I feel like as well, at a certain point, Russia became allies with the United States, and then that's where the breakdown happened, and then we got into the Cold War. But I could be misremembering mis my history. But anyway, get back on point. When it comes to uh, World War II, if all we ever heard was... Um, Axis powers propaganda, and we never heard anything that the United States was doing, even though we lived in the country. We never saw any, you know, war films at the beginning of our, you know, at the movies we went to go see at the cinema. Uh, you know, any 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 uh, jabbing being done by Looney Tunes or Merry Melodies, uh, in any you know sleight of hand jabbings. Uh, no no news reports on the radio. You know, because again, at that time, everyone had a radio in their house. Everyone didn't have a TV. If I'm not mistaken, that was such a small commodity. They were the size of a, you know, a pocket television, the screen itself, but the device was a floor television. It was hilarious. And you had to be ridiculously rich. So everyone just had a radio. Um, I heard a hilarious thing. Uh, well, I mean, I'm not going to get into that. That's, that's, I'm not getting into that. Uh, but yes, so if, if you were in that situation, all you would know is what they were doing. And you would have all this vitriol and feel like, oh, well, something needs to be done on our side with you not knowing that, you know, there was a Manhattan Project going on and, you know, we were sending troops over and having all these battles and all these victories. If we didn't know any of that and all we knew was what the Axis powers were doing, we would have a very skewed viewpoint of World War II and vice versa. If, and again, this is just think, like if it was the History Channel, if all they showed was Hitler stuff and never anything else, you'd be like, oh, I guess Hitler was the only thing in World War II. Vice versa, if all they ever showed was, uh, get this right, Nick, Truman and Eisenhower. I believe that's right, because Eisenhower was the FBI. Oh, man, that's so horrible. That's so horrible. Truman, I believe, was the FBI. Damn it. Truman and Eisenhower, atomic bomb. Truman dropped bomb. Yeah, I get that right. So I think it was Eisenhower, then Truman. And sad that I remember Churchill's stuff way more than our own president's. Anyway, um, if, if we didn't if we didn't hear about, as I said, what our troops, or if we were only hearing about rather what our troops were doing, and that we were just going to all these other countries and taking them over, and you know the amount of people we had killed, but we never talked about why we were killing them. We never talked about what their belief systems were, and in truth, not our perceptions of their belief systems, but what they actually were. Yes, we were starting to bleed into the 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 positive aspects of propaganda, but that was near the end of the war because we saw that there were positive things that were 
being used by the Germans, but to, to horrendous extremes, like cl clinical trials. Clinical trials nowadays all stem from World War II. We weren't doing clinical trials en masse in the 1800s. Medicine was in shambles. The, the idea of a doctor, let alone a surgeon or, or a mortician, um, having a clean working space was seen as almost heretic, uh, or, or heretic. There you go. Uh, it didn't matter whether you had cleanliness uh, in, in those areas because they were all seen as, you know, humors and spirits, not spirits, humors, phlegm, bile. There's one more. Humor, phlegm, bile. Perhaps it's just blood. Maybe those are just the four because of the four. Uh, no, because it's the four humors. So it's phlegm, bile, blood, and one more. Maybe urea but just in a different word. Because your sweat and your urine is, it stems from the same chemical compounds. It's just, it's a little bit more, um, um, oh man, what is it? Nitrogen. Nitrogen and there's one more thing. It's clearly not sulfur. It's nitrogen and something else that ends up giving urea a pungent smell, but you're sweating urine. It's hilarious. That's why sweat stinks among other reasons, bacteria for the most part, not just the chemical compound. But uh, clinical trials, they all stemmed from this idea that, oh, testing things on humans is far better than testing them on animals. I mean, people, if, if people found out, and which is the case, that they were testing cosmetics on humans, and not to some drastic degree, they were doing that as opposed to testing it on bunnies and cats and dogs, who we were like, oh yeah, cool, because it's humans and they have a say in it. But if they were like, oh, no, we were doing electroshock therapy on all these all these human t uh, test subjects, and we deemed them test subjects instead of people, and it was all for mascara, or it was all for foundation, or it was all for some kind of lotion for your feet, <laughs> your ashy, ashy feet. Um, and people would be like, whoa, hey, you've gone a little bit too far here, like way too far. Like it's time to bring this company up on charges. Um, it's, it's all a matter of perspective. And... That, that communication during World War II via the radio, uh, you know, via the transistor, as it were, uh, all thanks to Nikola Tesla. Um, you know, you could say Marconi as well, but that's later on. Uh, it, was, it was Tesla. It's just truth be told. Um, if we didn't have that communication, then that war would have had very different outcomes, you know, because people would have very different perceptions. Just look at how long it took the United States to get involved in World War II. It was the fact that people were not given all of the information. They were only given some bits because of different aspects of yellow journalism. And I'm not pointing fingers, and that's not a racist statement. Anyone that knows, yellow journalism just means journalism that is trying to tarnish the reputation of the subject matter. It is not some kind of slight against one race of people on the planet or another. But because of rampant yellow journalism, there had to be a... Um, coming together of more morally upstanding reporters, morally upstanding newscasters to report exactly what was going on, to be uh, in league, to, to work alongside with PAOs, public affairs officers within the military branch of the U.S. government. Um, it, it, you, you have to have communication from both sides of a conflict. You just think in, in, your, in a relationship, whoever it is that you're with, if you were angry about something and you just told them why you were angry and you didn't even give the other individual time to have a response 
whether it was why they didn't understand why you're angry or why they're not able to now or uh, why they won't even give you time a time of day and they just go about their business and do what you say or go about their business and continue to fight against you, eventually you'd want to end that relationship. You wouldn't want to keep dealing with that person. Um, that, in essence, is war. Hence the phrase, all is fair in love and war. There's a lot of similarities between the two. Um, the ending of a relationship is, 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 in essence, a battle. It's, it's a symbolic death of a journey that the two of you have been going along. And in any conflict, if you look at just one side and say, oh, what these people are saying is right, because I believe what they're saying, and I'm not even going to pay attention to what the other side is saying. I'm not even going to try and find any similarities. I won't try and come to any kind of agreement or understanding. Then you're bound to fight. You're never going to find a peaceful resolution. Inherently, there's going to be a subconscious um, need for tumult. That's right. I said it like tumult, not tumult. I like tumult better. Uh, T-U-M-U-L-T. It's just going to be there. Uh, so, to come back to the point, it's it's a great thing that uh, around the world, whether it is in the Middle East, and you're hearing from both sides, you know, their their death tolls, their humanitarian efforts, or it's between Russia and Georgia, or it's between uh, Russia and Ukraine, or it's between apparently Russia and the rest of the world, <laughs> uh, or it's between China and Nepal or it's between the United States and Mexico, or the United States and a lot of different countries in the world. Uh, if you, it, because we have all this information that's being able to fly around, we can hear why there's this aggression between the two sides. Um, the It's a great thing that we have that communication. But what needs to be understood is that perhaps there's a new, another way to go about it. If you look at any war, the only way it comes to an end is this some form of, I'm hoping I'm using this word right. I won't even say it because I'm probably wrong. You have to come to some form of an agreement. The two sides must sit down and have a peace accord. Actually, that's, that's, that's redundant. They have to come to an accord. They have to find peace. You can't just keep fighting until everyone's dead. That's hard-headed. That's not intelligent. There's nothing intelligent about killing for killing's sake. That's emotional. It's emotional. That's the biggest joke to me. Every time I hear uh, people saying why, for, for instance, why women shouldn't run for office or be uh, leaders in the militaristic field. And then the argument against it is because, oh, women are emotional or, oh, because women are ruled by their emotions because of their uterus or really their reproductive organs, not just their uterus. The uterus, as, as it were, is the final stop before the exit. Sorry, I didn't mean to gross anyone out, but that's just anatomy. It's biology. Um, the idea of fighting uh, just because you're not willing to have a conversation with someone, that this heat of the moment, this passion that you're trying to act out, this aggression, that's all emotion. The individuals who are fighting without emotion are few and far between, i.e. snipers. Individuals like that have to be as calm as possible, and they're just following an order. Uh, but people that are on the battle lines, they're, they're, yes, they're following orders, but they're trained, hence basic training, they're trained to dig into the emotions that allow them to not feel uh, the, the repercussions of hatred and anger. Um, so the, the more that we understand why societies continue to fight, um, because they're not willing to submit to another idea, 
And thankfully, because we have all this communication, we can look at those old philosophies and perhaps um, meld them into a newer, better way of living as a, a global entity, as opposed to city-states constantly at war. Um, perhaps we can move towards a society that's uh, multi-sexed and has men, women, uh, transgender, hermaphrodite, hermaphroditic uh, individuals who are holding all stations of uh, power and, you know, allowing for a change of the guard when necessary. Of course, you don't want a dictatorship world round. That's not cool. You can keep having a democratic republic, but perhaps instead of having to schlep your way 50 miles to the polling station, you could just tweet about it. It sounds crazy, but look at anything that's trending on Twitter, whether it's got a million tweets or 50,000. It means that a million or 50,000 people all have the same idea. And why not have you know, a particular branch of the government that quite literally, instead of spying on individuals just because they feel like, oh, they're a threat to the old system, to the status quo, they just, for the most part, sift through tweets and see, okay, well, if we have 50,000 tweets, say, or let's say 50 million people saying that, oh, we should do this new thing, they're totally behind it. And they have these links in their tweets that say like, oh, you know, this is the study that I read. It's very easy to do. We do it all the time. We link to Vines and we link to Instagrams. It happens all the time. You just have an Instagram that ends up having some picture of some document you read. It happens all the time. Um, you have the, that 50 million people that believe that, but then you have another million people that believe differently. Taking a week where you have 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 people world round, that is their job, whether they work from home or from particular types of offices, to sift through those tweets and see what the dissension amongst the ranks uh, boils down to. Uh, you could then have just repost that information and say, okay, well, we've had a 50 to one ratio of people who agreed with this new measure. Here's why people did not agree with it. Should we move forward with a new way of doing it? Should we, should we amend it? You know, it's a global society that way, as opposed to having it as a select few who have um, a complete control over the, the, the billions. Um, and again, you know, you could have people that say, oh, well, it's not necessarily good to have all that information out there uh, because people will abuse that power. I would rather have a 16-year-old, let me not go there because that makes it sound like I'm going in a weird place. I'd rather have an 18-year-old be in charge of whether a foreign country gets more water or more food than a closed-door board of directors. You know, for the most part, because that 18 year old is going to be paying attention to that topic for but so long at a certain point they're going to grow out of that or get fatigued by that and the individuals who could be potential board members or who are currently board members will be in the public eye and perhaps be more informed about it and give their informed decision to the public a lot of this especially this idea of uh, being able to submit being given the option to submit by uh, a higher power and and getting love out of that submission not hatred not pain not uh, toiling away at a job, two or three jobs, uh, just to barely make enough money to live within your society. That's submitting towards pain, submitting towards love, being able to get what it is that you want out of life um, after coming to a mutual understanding of what the both of you want out of life, you and the entity, whether the entity be the government or a corporation or the company you work for or the, the, the employees that work for you, if it's a small business, or your boss in a small business, or your partner in a relationship, uh, 
understanding that it's not total submission. It's not submission throughout the, enti the entirety of your life, that there's a give and take, that those in power must submit from time to time, submit to the whims and the will of the people, if it seems like that's for the betterment of the people and not just for an individual. If the leader is not willing to submit because it's not good for the, the leader, but it's still good for the people, then it's not in the best interest of the people. You know, them, them attempting to use inducement or dominance uh, is is not is not beneficial for society as a whole, and that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about um, personal freedoms uh, within the home. We're talking about personal freedoms within society. Those are two different scenarios. What you do in your home, nobody cares, unless you're stockpiling dynamite. That's when it becomes dangerous. You know. You don't keep it in a cool area. It gets all super hot. Your house blows up, and now half the, half that city block is gone. You are a danger to those around you. But if you decide you want to go to Whole Foods and Costco all the time and buy a bunch of stuff and just keep it in your house, we live in an overproductive society that just quite literally pays for waste. We pay farmers to burn crops, to destroy crops. We throw things out and allow it to fester and rot in fields instead of giving it to people who are hungry. If an individual wants to do that in their own in their own life, you know, stockpile stuff, knock your stuff out. You're not hurting anyone. We don't live in a world where there genuinely isn't enough because there isn't enough. We live in a world that doesn't have enough because we're not giving it out enough, as it were. We're not showing compassion. And that's that's what this character stems from, this idea of having compassion for one another. Uh, being compassionate enough to submit. Uh, to understand that what that person is putting forward as an idea perhaps might be a better idea than your own and submitting to your own ego and realizing that perhaps what you want to do isn't better for the greater good, whether it's for that relationship or for the, the global society uh, or uh, sub submitting, as I said, uh, submitting as a leader, uh, either giving the option of submission to those who are, are looking to you as a leader because you need leaders and you need followers. Everyone can't be a leader and everyone can't be a follower. Just like everyone can't be a singer or a painter or an author or a director or a writer or an actor, and I mean male or female actor, uh, or a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. Everyone can't be the exact same thing. You have to, of course, follow your passions, but go where it makes sense. Go where it's economically feasible for you to go. You know, and if it's not, then perhaps change things around to make it better for yourself. Um, but, you know, in that case of having people who are leading society, who are leading by example, um, they have to not only be able to give the option of submission to people so that they can follow that, that new way of thinking, you also have to be able to submit to your, to the egos of others. And say, well, hold, perhaps what I'm trying to do is not necessarily the best uh, modus operandi. As I said, compassion. And specifically, when it comes to William Moulton Marston, he had created this character to be able to give compassion through love. Now, that was something I was going to go into as a side note when it comes to the men's rights movement. And I feel like I might go into that a little bit and later on in the show, not not in this episode, but later on in the show, um, it's a touchy area. Why is that? Because anytime you go into gender politics, it gets funky. 
I got some funky emails over at Fair Play Pod. That's over now. It was only eight episodes. But uh, there were there were some uh, gender politics. Uh, um, that that I had brought up, that uh, some people were unsure about. There was some unsurety. They, it wasn't offense. People didn't take offense, but they were just unsure. Not because of the point that I, the points that I was putting across were unclear, but because they weren't settling in. They weren't they weren't settling right with those individuals. And then we you know we had a back and forth, and not not a negative back and forth. It was just like, oh, okay, this is what you believe, this is what I believe. Oh, this is what you believe, this is what I believe. You know, just so we could understand where each of us was coming from. And that's that's all you ever want in a compromise. Compromise, there's a false belief that a compromise involves utter sacrifice. It involves submission, but it doesn't involve utter sacrifice. You're supposed to, in a compromise, be able to have both individuals understand where each person is coming from, not trying to turn one person or the other towards your belief. That's an argument. That's an argument. That's an argument that is, which as well, completely different from a debate. An argument is you trying to force someone to understand where you're coming from and to do what you want them to do. A debate is trying to passively uh, convince someone else that what you're saying is the right, the right thing to say or what you're doing is the right thing to be done uh, and, and perhaps have them follow suit. But at the end of the day, a compromise exists when both sides understand where the other person's coming from and they work towards trying to appease each other. That's why compromise is such a beautiful ideal. Um, there was bound to be an uprising of a men's rights movement uh, after the civil rights movement, which was a long time coming up until 1964, of course. Uh, but uh, And then the subsequent passing of the Civil Rights Act by... Lyndon Johnson, if I'm not mistaken, because it wasn't passed by uh, JFK. It was not. I'm almost positive it was not passed by JFK. He was assassinated in 63. Uh, and I know the civil rights movement happened after 1963, uh, but it was a long time coming. But in the time that the civil rights movement for African Americans, for uh, Jewish Americans, for Irish Americans, for Chinese Americans and Korean Americans, Taiwanese Americans, Singaporeans, um, Hawaiians, uh, in that time when all of that was rising and, and coming to a head, not not a violent head, but but a, a political milestone, like a, a political achievement, a political milestone. Uh, during that time, the women's movement was gaining an immense amount of ground. They had already passed the 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 women's right to vote. You know that, and it wasn't called the Women's Right to Vote Act, but there was an amendment that was put into the Constitution that you know was like, oh yes, you know. Women can vote. Like, that bugs me to no end. Like, that we really had to get to a point and say, yeah, women can vote. Like, they're people. Like, people are people. Like, men and women are people. It's not like men are one thing, and then, you know, Caucasian men are, one, you know, one thing or above and beyond or whatever. And then women and then men of other races are, like, something else in completely different categories. Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. There may be different genders, but everyone deserves the same rights. Whether they're going to act upon those rights is a personal choice, but they should be given the option. You should be given the option. Again, that's proper leadership. It's submission through will. Um, this, uh, this idea, though, that one side is completely right and the other side is wrong is a false way to go about it. Again, that's not proper compromise. It, just go, it goes back to that allegory I was throwing up about wars. If you have just one side, and again, it's a touchy subject with 
the modern day Middle East because people are, are religiously biased because they follow a certain religion or they have social circles that have a particular religion. They wholeheartedly believe that that particular side is right or this particular side is wrong. But we can have ourselves removed from a war that was grandiose but impacted the world as it were, i.e. World War II. If we were, like I said, just to pay attention to one side or the other and say that they were just absolutely right, then it would be a horrible mistake for us to say, for instance, that every single German was a Nazi is inappropriate thinking. And clearly over the decades we've seen that is not the case. But to believe that there weren't Germans that were Nazis, of course, would be wrong-headed. It would be the wrong way to go. To think like, oh, it's just Hitler and just... Um, why am I blanking on all these other people? Uh, Lenny Riefenstahl. Is that right? I feel horrible. No, that's not right. I'm going to pull back on that. I think that's somebody else. So let's pull away from that. Uh, Hitler and... I just wanted to say Germans. Why can't I think of any other Germans that were Nazis? Because I don't watch the History Channel for the Nazi stuff. I haven't watched the History Channel in years. Um, but yeah, just that the people in power, you know, the people that were running the SS, uh, all those different people. Uh, to believe that just them were, were Nazis, but then like none of the soldiers were Nazis, that none of the citizenry of Germany were, were Nazis, that as well would be wrong. But you have to look at every situation on a case-by-case -case basis. Anytime you, you start going down the road of this particular ideology should be abolished, you need to examine it carefully. And, you know, I, I had this conversation with a friend of mine uh, last week, and it actually bled into this week. Uh, there was no pun intended with that particular descriptor. Um, but the idea that uh, women should choose whether they want to work or stay at home or do both. It shouldn't be forced upon them uh, the, some, some semblance of shame for deciding to work instead of raising a family or to raise a family instead of going to work or trying to balance working and having a family no one, no one should be doing that to them because they're living the life that they want to live. If you want to have a debate on whether that's genuinely healthy for the, the mental acuity of the, of the progeny, whether the children are going to grow up with their head screwed on properly, that's a different conversation because then you have to take in not only that individual situation, but the, to the totality of situations that children can grow up in. And for the most part, there aren't really any good children like it's such a rarity that people will say, oh, that's a good kid. But most kids, they can be bastards <laughs> at one way, shape, or form at one time in their lives. You know, myself definitively included, um, you know, because that's just growing pains. And then we all end up having some kind of weird thing from childhood that we have to reconcile, whether we reconcile it in college and we're just a well-adjusted human being, or we do it in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and then through therapy or through relationships, friendships, whatever, we're able to work through that those past traumas whether it was somebody, you know, some schoolyard bully, you know, and then we we couldn't relay that information to our parents because we were supposed to win the fight or because we would thusly get beat at home or because we got no attention paid at home, you know, whatever the case was. Everybody has some different trauma, some different situation that they've had to live through that informed their future decisions to say that their parents sh definitively should have been one way or another is a bold, bold stance to take. It's a bold stance. You have to be very careful with that. And I've, I've very rightly so met so many different women through my life. And I don't mean had sexual congress with, but just people that as well, that just straight up friendships with 
that have had vast, vastly differing opinions on whether for themselves they should work, you know, like concentrate on their professional life and allow their personal life just to be something that's just reserved for the weekends. And then women who, for the most part, uh, were trying to pull away from the system, trying to pull away from the, the machine and, you know, maybe just work part time or not work at all and focus on uh, trying to raise a family with a particular ideal set. Um, particular ideals, I'm sorry, it should be idea set with particular ideals. And then as well, meeting women who were attempting to raise their child or children and have a part time job or a full time job or jobs uh, and, and that balancing act. It's all a matter of personal responsibility, and that's what it comes down to. You cannot hoist personal responsibilities upon other people. They must be taken up by each individual. You must realize, you must find some sense of responsibility within yourself and act upon that. Be a responsible citizen. You cannot wait for someone else to tell you, oh, this is precisely what you must do as a responsible citizen. Again, you must offer the the choice of submission. You must say, look, these are the things that you can do in society. What would you like to do? If the if the impetus behind the the uh, feminist movement is to give more choices to individuals, not just women, but to men as well, and perhaps let's throw children into there too, because mom, they're not genderless. They're in a sense sexless. You know, they're 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 not as ruled by their hormones you know, uh, until their teenage years. And, you know, we have to have children's rights, you know, that's why we had to, we had to enact different laws to make it so that you didn't have nine-year-olds working in factories and being submitted to horrible conditions. But we're so far beyond that in the first world. And we still have to take care of that in the rest of the world. So that's still a part of it. So yeah, but in this particular argument, when it comes to men and women, uh, you can't just say, oh, this is, this is precisely the way that women are supposed to act. Or to say, this is precisely the way women should never act. Women should never be this way. You know, I've spoken about this in, in the Constant Tone podcast. There's a period in my life where there would be a pimp and prostitutes who lived at my house for a different period of time, different periods of time. Um, and there was a, an ex, a growing acceptance that I had for that lifestyle because there were horrible aspersions that were cast upon that way of life. There's a big difference between prostitution and sex trafficking. When you are creating an, an atmosphere of indentured slavery, indentured servitude uh, for either, whether it be underage or of age women, and they are not, they're treated as subhuman, that is a problem that must be addressed post haste. We need to take care of that. That is a ridiculous situation that people still have to go through because of uh, um, unwarranted uh, abuses of power, either by individuals or by uh, organizations. But when it comes to a mutual agreement between, between two consenting adults, whether it's between the woman of the night and the gentleman caller or female caller, uh, lady caller, yeah, lady, ladies and gentlemen, gentleman caller, lady caller, or it's between the woman of the night and her manager, those are adults. To say that, uh, oh, well, this adult isn't thinking in their right mind, they're not making the right decision, so they shouldn't do it. So what? Uh, a woman or a man decides to call a woman of the night 
or a man of the night. I, I don't mean to just say that prostitutes are just women. They they call them, and and you know they call them up in whichever way they do it, texting or you know the different avenues that you can. I don't want to give give up the ghost with that. I'm not trying to get people arrested because it's still illegal for some dumb reason. It should be regulated like it is in Amsterdam. That way you can be safer uh, having uh, medic, uh, medical care for not only the women of the night, uh, but the the managers being able to run it like a small business for the most part because they tend to have less than 15 workers. Um, it's just tax revenues, people. Come on, think about it. People need to have sex. They need to release tension. And all this pornography can't be good for all of us at the very least for some of us. Um, but the idea that, oh, well, an individual can't call a person of the night and have sexual congress with them because, oh, it's not morally correct, and that thusly no one should be allowed to do it, that's crazy talk. They have to take that person who made that call and needs to take the responsibility that, hey, perhaps they're jeopardizing their relationship, whether it's with uh, an individual that they're just considering a boyfriend or a girlfriend or it's a married relationship. They have to take that personal responsibility. But to make it completely illegal for the land, nobody is dying. That's the only time you should be, or being physically harmed. That's the only time you should be stepping in when it comes to the law, if somebody's being physically harmed. You know, it cracks me up. Marijuana is illegal in so many places in this country, yet people die of lung cancer left and right over cigarettes. You are physically harmed by that product, and yet it's, it's okay. It's, it's not even looked at as a bad thing. All the carcinogens that are in it, they, we, we had commercials for damn near a decade. It's still going on, those truth commercials, telling you about all the messed up stuff that's in cigarettes, both in the inhalation and the exhalation. And yet, no, they, they still sell them. Any store, any store that serves a passing customer base sells cigarettes. So whether it's a CVS or a Walgreens or a gas station, if it serves people that don't necessarily live in the town but would be passing through, serves cigarettes. I say that because stores that don't, you know, where it's just like a mom and pop store, it's a good chance they won't sell that stuff, like a cafe or something like that, because they're just serving the local community. And they're just to the whims of the local community. But anyway, I digress. Um, and then as well to say, oh, well, you know, you had that one scenario amongst many. Uh, because we're not even taking into account a single individual calling a, a person of the night because they're in the same cat they're forced into the same category of oh well the people that are people of the night are doing something illegal and they must all be arrested that's crazy crazy it doesn't make any sense they're, they're consenting to an, a fun activity a part of life what it means to be an adult a part of what it means to be an adult but as well uh, between uh, a person of the night and their manager, the individual is trying to keep them safe because some people try and have sexual congress and then try and get away with it for free or they might be a violent individual. Why are we not trying to take care of those rights? Unfortunately, I've heard of m too many occasions, uh, especially where, where I'm at now, there was this bizarre thing I was hearing about how, uh, it's Colorado, how uh, there was this whole thing where there used to be this huge uh, bout of prostitution in the area and they ended up cleaning it up, like cleaning up all the prostitutes off the street. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Like, why did they just do that? Like, if they were allowed to exist for decades, why did they just disappear? And everyone that was relaying this information to me, they were like, oh, well, the thing was basically they started snitching on the cops because the cops were not paying for the services. You know, they were not, on, and by services, I mean uh, the information they were gathering from these people of the night, uh, you know, about other crime, other criminal activities. But then as well, um, requesting uh, sexual favors and not giving anything in return. You know, 
And that is a whole nother conversation that is sure to come up in this show. Uh, the exchange of sex for money and how it's not just reserved for prostitution. And it's only seen as unacceptable when it's called prostitution. I'm going to stop that part of the conversation right there. Um, but the idea that uh, a person of the night and their manager cannot work together and continue to work that business, run, run that business. I was about to say work the corner, but it's, that's not always the case. Um, the fact that they can't do that because of a personal understanding that they've come to, a business relationship that they formed, uh, is, is ridiculous as well. And that that was a big part of the feminist movement to say that it wasn't, it would be a bold-faced lie. Just look at what was going on in the 70s and pornography. How pornography, and especially like the, the mid to late 70s and especially the 80s, there were a lot of different proponents. Not, and again, because I'm not trying to cast aspersions to the entire feminist movement. I'm talking about individuals who were at the forefront. Not all, but some were using pornography as a justification uh, the, 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 their perception of what was being portrayed in pornography as a justification to uh, criminalize pornography and, and, and using as one of the arguments, not the only, but one of the arguments that it was anti-feminist, that it was, it was misogynistic to portray sexual congress between men and women uh, in, in a public forum. Uh, and the argument against it was it's not a public forum, it's in private, these are, you know, tapes or videos, especially once VHS and Betamax came to the forefront, you know, in the 80s, like, it, to, the, to the masses, to the consumer public, not just to people who are affluent, um, that it started to pull away from um, sex shows and, and, and uh, theaters that showed uh, sexual films. Uh, can I just, that's just pornography, that showed porn. Um, that it truly went into the private realm and that, that argument started to die away. Um, I definitely, it seems like I've gone into it a lot here, but I really haven't. There's a lot more that I could go on to and it's pertinent in a podcast about Wonder Woman and, and you know, women's rights and men's rights, you know, because we have to share this planet. Um, but but having that conversation via a, a fictional group of people uh, that live on an island that have no men and they have a representative that go into the world, as it's called here, of men, um, you know, where men and women intermingle on a daily basis and trying to reconcile the thoughts that that character would have, that character being Diana. Um, it's, it's important to talk about not just one side of this war, as it were, you know, love and war, this, this love battle between the sexes, to just talk about what it means to be a woman or to just talk about what it means to be a man is an unfair treatment of exactly what's going on nowadays. But there is a huge thing about this. Uh, there was this backlash because people had believed, you know, oh, the, the women's movement is trying to subdue mankind. Like the, the, the man side, not womankind, but mankind. Because I don't mean mankind, meaning humankind. I mean the men's side of it. They're trying to take away what it means to be a man. And I think the argument sh should have been more a redefinition of what it means to man be a man as well as a redefinition of what it means to be a woman. That in essence, there's no definitive way for each one to be like, like, or just one way. There could be definitive ways, but not a definitive way. You should be free to do what you want to do as an individual, not be forced to do what other people say you must be doing. Uh, so there are 
good points and bad points in both the women's rights movement and the men's rights movement. But to say that one is valid and one is invalid or one is invalid and the other is valid is not looking at the situation properly and it's allowing hatred to foment. And of course there would be hatred in the men's movement because that's what it's perceived as, but there is definitely hatred in the women's movement. I've definitely seen a, a shift, and not a drastic shift, but a shift, especially having grown up in Manhattan and spent quite a bit of time hanging out in the village, really in the extremities, in the village and the uppermost part of Spanish Harlem. It's pretty much like 200 Street and above. Um, seeing more uh, sexually open individuals in those areas and realizing that as a black man, uh, I'd have to do so much to be accepted within the lesbian community. Um, because of all these assumptions that they had about not only men, but about black men and then black men who live in a city. Um, I could use that argument and say, like, oh, well, all lesbians are bad or the whole feminist movement is bad. But that's stupid. That's stu that would be stupid of me. Because I would be doing exactly what they were doing initially. But for me to have completely shunned them as potential friends would have been shortchanging them. Uh, short Shortchanging their humanity. Uh, shortchanging their ability to be the people that they are, which is just like everyone else, scared individuals. They're trying to figure out exactly who they are or trying to continue to live as the person that they feel like that they are. You know, the person that they are when they see themselves in the mirror, they wake up in the morning, they go to sleep at night, um, trying to reconcile that with a society who may not be accepting of it or who may be accepting of it, but they know that there's another part of society that's kind of wonky. Uh, that's unfair to them to say like, oh, well, now they're not worthy of even having a conversation with. That would be horrible of me to do. And there was never that case. I've been fortunate enough that I've been uh, allowed to be in so many different types of uh, groups of people over the course of my, you know, really just from puberty forward, so many different types of people that I just, it was kind of, you know, submission, you know, but it's not a negative term. It was, it was realizing like, hey, I'm just a person amongst billions. I can't, just think that what I like to do is the only way that it should be done because other people like to do other things. So I have to be open to the things that they like to do. Like, oh, this is where you come from. That's awesome. It doesn't mean I have to start doing it now. You know, and I think there's this weird fear on the men's side, like, oh, well, and on in the, the lesbian front, like, oh, what? So for me to be completely understanding of it, I have to be castrated, whether physically or emotionally, in order to s submit to your will. That's not the case at all. That is not the case, but there has to be some form of understanding and an acceptance of who that group of people are, uh, as well as who they are as individuals and accepting of, 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 of their choices. And, and conversely, uh, within the, the lesbian community to look at mankind and say like, oh, well, what I'm supposed to not be as powerful because I don't have a phallus, you know, or I have to do phallic things to be seen as powerful? Uh, no, that would be crazy. Like nobody really wants that. There are pig-headed men who believe that, but in general, I've never really come across any guys that felt that way. Never really. And you know, like I said, there has to be a compromise. And an addendum to that, I'm I'm so glad that Tumblr exists now. And I know that's a weird thing to say, but let me do just a quick explanation <laughs> because this episode is uh, beautifully lengthy, but that's how I like to keep these episodes. I, I've, I've been sick of, for a long time, this this um, aspersion that's been cast upon heterosexual males that 
the fact that an aspect of our fantasies, whether it be 1% of it, or for some people that 100% of their, their fantasy involves sexual congress between two or more women. This idea that, oh, that's horrible, and that's not how lesbians really are. The average dude knows that. The average dude knows that it's it, it, all lesbians aren't just a bunch of beautiful people because all heterosexual relationships aren't just a bunch of beautiful people. <laughs> Most of us are ugly motherfuckers. That's just the truth of the matter. We're just normal people trying desperately not to look normal. And normal and normalcy is, is ugly to most people. They want to be unique. Their uniqueness is what they see as, oh, that's sexy. That's cool because you're different. Even though you're not wearing any clothes that you stitched by hand, you're wearing something that's a piece of hundreds. Even if you're wearing a designer brand, you're wearing it because a particular person is renowned, whether it's world-renowned or country-renowned, for what they create. Um, that's known. The reason why it's a fantasy is because it's something you don't see every day. That's why uh, there's been such this, this prevalence, especially in the United States, especially in the last couple of decades. I can only speak for the last decade because I'm a part of that, sexually speaking. Um, this 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 attraction by the heterosexual male towards um, uh, female homosexual congress. Um, I'm so glad Tumblr exists because I have been shocked by the amount of, and the, the term is shipping. It's hilarious. It, it does occur between male and female fictional characters. But I've seen quite a lot of it occurring between male characters. And funnily enough, I saw some bizarre stuff after Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch got cast as Doctor Strange. Um, there was a comment on Twitter. I feel like it stemmed from Twitter and then it bled on a Tumblr and exploded. Sorry for that frickin' allegory. Um, but how basically the, 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 consent, the consent of the tweet was, oh, I fear for Tumblr because of what they're going to create now that, in essence, Sherlock and Loki are going to be the most prominent male figures in Hollywood. And then it just became a whole bunch of just the, the natural permutation of fan fiction. Uh, pictures and gifts just showing some kind of potential sexual congress between Benedict Cumberbatch and Tom Hiddleston. That, of course, there's a, a homosexual male component to that, like users of Tumblr that would be for that. But a large percentage of that uh, is a part of that group of women. I can't speak for women of every age because every individual is different. But when you're talking about generalities, men and women in their teens, high school men and women, have a lot of hormones going through them. And they, they don't know how to place them properly. So they start having affections for bizarre things, for archetypes. So men will be chasing after what they perceive to be what they genuinely want, and women will be chasing after what they perceive to be what they genuinely want. Hence the popularity of One Direction currently and Backstreet Boys previously. Not to say that it was unwarranted or that any group was talented or untalented. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there has to be a reason why millions of people would be going behind that music as opposed to a bunch of other forms of musicality when they know at their heart, like the fans know it's just a product. Like these, this is a, a, a made group. Like these guys weren't all like, oh, childhood friends, blah, blah. Like maybe two of them were childhood friends, but it wasn't like they all just got together one day accidentally, got on a bus like the Josie and the Pussycats movie. You know, well, that's not how it happened. In Josie Pussycat's movie, they were all friends, and they rode around in a bus. So I guess that was a bad analogy. Uh, but, okay, so I'll pull that away. That was a great movie if you've never seen it. 
Josie and the Pussycats was a hilarious movie. It was really funny. Um, wow, I got pulled away there. Um, but there's this inherent understanding that that group was formulated, that it's a some shape or form, a, some shape or form, a, a supergroup, whether they have a phrase for that or not. Um, but there's an attraction to it because it's this ideal that they are they are forming these archetypes, like oh, this is the bad boy, or this is the good boy, or this is you know this is the rebel, this is the guy who's got the tattoos, or this is the one that's religious, you know, this is the one that's super romantic, this is the one that isn't tied down, you know, like they're they're in archetypes, and there's this weird denial amongst women that that's an occurrence, and I feel like there was a shift. And, and again, I'm not talking about any generalities with that. That's specifically, I heard a lot about that stuff uh, in college and then after the fact. Um, there was a shift when Twilight happened because it was a book that was initially for teenage girls that bled into the um, the adult market, female adult market. And when you go down that timeline towards Tumblr, there was more of an acceptance and understanding that, oh yeah, you know, people are have, have sexual urges that aren't aren't corralled in by time, by experience. You know, I don't mean I don't mean sexual experience. I, I mean just relationship experience. That you you don't have that hurt that you get from a breakup, uh, whether it's one instance or many instances that inform your future decisions on on partners or potential partners. Um, I'm very thankful for Tumblr because it, it I've seen a lot less of a lot a, a lot fewer accusations uh, hewn at men because of their enjoyment of two women getting together. Uh, specifically, like I said, that recent occurrence between the characters of Doctor Strange and Loki or the actors, because it'll be the actors as well, Benedict Cumberbatch and um, Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. I'll just say Loki because I don't know if it's Hiddleston or Hiddleston. I apologize. I, sh I should know because I like graphic novels, but I don't know because dot, 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 ellipses. Um, that's right. Six dots. Um, but I, I saw it way more with the characters from Supernatural uh, for Dean and, oh, man, I haven't seen that show uh, in a little bit. I used to be, I used to love that show. And because of the, the relationship between the brothers, that's a personal thing. You know, my own personal life, I have a great relationship with my brother and we both watched the show. We just, we liked it. We liked this idea of two brothers and it wasn't a, the family was just them. You know, it wasn't like this extended family. It was a lot of personal parallels we could draw there in our own lives. And it was cool. You know, it was demons and angels and all that stuff. It was, it was awesome. Werewolves and vampires, ghosts and and you know, Wendigos, <laughs> Wendigos, Wendigo, I think that they call it in the show. Anyway, just go on to Tumblr or just Google supernatural fanfic. It's not going to be fan fiction that is is stemming from a, a blatantly male homosexual website. It's from teenage as well as 20 something, 30 something, 40 something. It's, it's female sites, it's female hubs where they think the ultimate sexual congress is not that character being sexual with a female character from in the show and not even that that character getting in a sexual congress with them or some facsimile of them that they've written about it's about those two brothers it's an incestual relationship two brothers having a sexual relationship and that being the utmost of the, like the, the the culmination of their journey as characters i was very thankful for that because there's there's the understanding that uh, personal sexuality is an individual experience and it shouldn't be shunned. 
it should be embraced. That way you can work through it and either move past it because it's just a phase or go deeper into it because you thoroughly enjoy it. Um, I'm pretty sure when you first got into this podcast, you didn't think I would be talking about the sexual relationship between two male characters on a television show who just happen to be brothers. But all of this goes into this idea about uh, power struggles amongst the genders. It's, it's very important when you think about this particular character uh, of Wonder Woman. Uh, they, she, she embodies the beginning of seeing women, fictional women, in a completely different light. And again, this isn't, you know, discounting uh, Anne of Green Gables, or I believe that's completely different from Anna Karenina, or the mother in Ibsen's A Dollhouse, or, uh, you know, any, any female character that was fictional and seen as a powerful individual, even going back to Isis, uh, the, the fictional character, or the real uh, individual Nefertiti, Nefertiri, or Nefertiti, either one, or Cleopatra, that they were powerful women in history. They always existed. But an individual that was in a modern era, that you could hear radio plays about, that you could read these graphic novels that depicted a story as well as, you know, in, in, in art as well as in literature, but combined in the same moment. You could have this whole story, and then where it's melded, it melded into down the line where you had the 1970s live-action television show, and then you had Justice League, Un Justice League, the cartoon, and then Justice League Unlimited, and then you had the uh, different DC animated universe films that either had Wonder Woman as one of the characters within the Justice League, or she had her solo movie. If you're listening to this podcast, I highly recommend you going on Amazon and getting a copy, or if you're not going to buy it, check out on Netflix. They have it on there. Uh, it was last time I checked. Last time I checked, it was a couple weeks ago because I bought it. I have it, but it was a couple weeks ago I saw it. The Wonder Woman director video uh, movie. It's a cartoon, but it's a movie. Uh, amazing. It's not a motion. It's not like a motion graphic novel where it's like static images that are kind of. It's a full-on cartoon, but it is amazing. It is graphic. It's not for children. I believe technically the rating is PG-13, but it should be like R because they curse in it and people get decapitated and there's blood everywhere. Like it's. It is kick-ass, and I feel like that cartoon was the impetus behind uh, spearheading the television show that unfortunately didn't go anywhere, but it should have because it was cool. I like that idea that there was going to be a Wonder Woman show, and then having a Justice League on screen and now Gal Gadot playing Wonder Woman, which that's a whole other conversation I'll probably reserve for the next episode. I was so disappointed by the backlash against Gal Gadot and the fact that it was mostly coming from a female audience. It definitely has died down, which I love. And there's been a more of an outpouring of like, oh, she's gonna be great, especially after the suit came out, which shows the sexism amongst both sexes. But anyway, um, yeah, because I could get into that whole conversation. But there's been all these different permutations of what it means to have a strong female archetype in this plethora of male archetypes. Uh, it all, it all really is. They're just focal points for the battle between the genders and that there has to be some kind of reconciliation, recon sorry, the stuttering, the reconciliation between the sexes, that the only way we can live on this planet together is that if we accept our differences and don't attempt to change them or, or malleate them to something completely different. So after quite a bit, we get into the character herself, Wonder Woman. Now, 
there is quite a bit of Wonder Woman pre-Flashpoint, which was the September 2011 event where the Flash did a, a no-no and messed up the whole DC multiverse. <laughs> That's just the bottom line. It's all Barry Allen's fault why the New 52 is the way that it is now. And a recent issue of The Flash, I won't even give away the issue, but a recent issue like clearly had a moment where Barry Allen was told, like, this is all your fault. Like, it's not even referenced in any parts of any other graphic novel because no one knows. They're just living their lives like, oh, this is a normal universe. Not realizing that all these universes are melded together. I don't even want to spoil stuff to get for people. But anyway, everything's messed up because of Barry Allen. <clears throat> Usually the, the different aspects of the multiverse, the different universes that are coexist um, within Detective Comics, uh, usually it involves the Flash in one way, shape, or form, whether it's Barry Allen, usually Barry Allen, but whether it's Barry Allen or Jay Garrick or Wally West, it's usually one of those three. Every now and again, it might involve um, Bart Allen, which is Kid Flash, the Flash in the future, uh, if I'm not mistaken, from the 31st century, because in um, Teen Titans, I was going to say Legion of Superheroes, Oh man, I just had an idea for Legion of Superheroes podcast. Is that coming? That grabbing novel was amazing. Oh my god, I'd have to stop one of these podcasts. I'd have to wait until I have to lose for one. Legion of Superheroes is amazing. It's amazing. I cannot wait till they make that show. I want it to be a movie, but it's got to be a show because there's so many characters. Anyway, um, yes, 31st century, uh, and then you know came back in time for various reasons. Pre Flashpoint, post Flashpoint, slightly different, but anyway, um, Flash did some stuff up until the point that the flashpoint occurred. So if you go from uh, Wonder Woman's first appearance, All-Star Comics number eight, December 1941, that was the cover date. So for the most part, it probably came out in like November. Because I think com graphic novels have always come out earlier than the cover date. <laughs> it's weird. This kind of always happens. But in a good way, I guess. I, never, I guess it's it's much rarer and, and in a better form that it doesn't come out at a later date. Like it says December 1941, but it comes out February 1942. Uh, but anyway, um, like I said, All-Star Comics, number eight, December 1941. From then up until September of 2011, there were a total of 884 issues, if I'm not mistaken. Volume 1 had 614 issues. Volume 2 had 226. Volume 3 had 44. So it's that 840, 844. Yeah, that's right. So there were 884 issues. At the time of this recording, and like I said, it's on Wednesday, Issue number 35 is coming out, and there's issues 1 through 35. There's two supplemental issues, which we'll probably get into. They were um, issues, I believe it's 23, so it's 23.1 and 23.2. They were issues going over The Firstborn and Cheetah, respectively. The Firstborn is a new villain for Wonder Woman, which I think would be an amazing villain for the film because it would go into the whole gender politics thing. You can go into the whole thing with the mascara and, and oh, it would be so amazing if they adapted this particular graphic novel, at least parts of it for the movies, just because I know this stuff way more than pre-Flashpoint. Um, but there's 35 of those issues uh, as well as those two. So it's technically 37 issues as of October 29th, 2014. Um, so that 39,884, people are probably way better at math than me. That's nine, 23, I believe, 923 issues. Um, I, I, I think there's a signaling point, 884, 16, so I think, I believe it's the 16th issue of this new series is technically issue 900. 
like the 900th issue of Wonder Woman since her inception. It's amazing. She has been in publication for the most part ever since her inception. Her first issue was not too long after. It was just like with Superman and just like with Batman. Uh, Batman started in Detective Comics. Superman started in Action Comics. Wonder Woman started in All-Star Comics. They all eventually got their own series, but hers, if I'm not mistaken, had the quickest turnaround. Her first issue being in All-Star Comics number eight, she was in December 1941. Her first official series by herself, Wonder Woman number one, was in the summer of 1942. So like less than six months later, that's how popular it was. It was so popular because it just, there was a dearth of female superheroes, let alone female heroes. Especially at that time, you know, you had this burgeoning women's movement, you know, that was so powerful and trying to get these rights forward so that women could have the choices, the same choices that men have to have this female character come up. And she wasn't just some person that was going around sleeping with people or she wasn't just the femme fatale, you know, she wasn't, you know, uh, an individual that was trying to lure people into her spider web, which is usually the case, you know, like with a detective story, which that's not anything against detective novel stuff. I love detective stories. I love noir, film noir. I love it. Uh, but there's a time and a place for everything. It can't just be all noir, you know. It can't be all black. <laughs> that was like a triple entendre right there. Um, but of course, that it would be a great thing for that character to come about because it, it, she's espousing so many different beliefs. And, and at her core, over the course of the 884 issues, and then as well, the subsequent 37... I had that wrong because I said 39. There's 35... And then those two, I don't even think there was a Wonder Woman annual, but there was one Wonder Woman Future's End. There's 38. So 38 plus 884 is uh, 9.22. Right? That's why I'm not a mathematician. I'm sorry. That's why I'm not an arithmetician. I'm half decent in math, but um, in, in mathematics and calculus, but simple math for some reason messes with my head all the time. But Wonder Woman, throughout her entire history, the, uh, and that is where we're at now, 72 years. Wow. Wow, three years. Wow, so I, if I'm not mistaken, her film is going to come out on the 75th anniversary. That is amazing. That is amazing. Uh, her first appearance would be in her uh, 74th, maybe 2016 with uh, Dawn of Justice. Uh, but yes, uh, quote-unquote, while many writers have depicted Diana in different personalities, what has remained constant is her ab ability to feel compassion and give love without discrimination. The modern version of the character has been shown to perform lethal and fatal actions when left with no other alternative. Which is amazing. Uh, you, you've had so many different writers that have written for her. Um, so many different ways that she's been um, depicted. Uh, but when we're, which is what we're focusing on here, the New 52, quote-unquote, uh, this particular version of the character has been portrayed to be a more young, headstrong, loving, fierce, and willful person. Brian Azzarello stated in a video interview with DC Comics that they're building a very, quote-unquote, confident, impulsive, and good-hearted character in her. He referred to her trait of feeling compassion as both her strength and weakness, which is important. You don't want to have a female character that, in essence, is even more indelible than Superman. Because Superman already, people look at him like, Jesus, like, unless you have Kryptonite, you can't bring that guy down. And for a lot of people, they don't like that. But that's the point of him. He stems from the Ubermensch. He has to be the ultimate elevation of what it means to be a human being. But it just was that he ended up becoming a male. Wonder Woman 
is, uh, I guess, uberwomensch. I don't know how you say woman in German, so I apologize if I said that and it sounded like I was trying to be offensive, but she's the female counterpart. And it doesn't mean weaker, it doesn't mean stronger, it means equal, the equal counterpart, an individual who's just so ridiculously strong, but doesn't use that power to domineer over the peoples. And, and when it came to Nietzsche's Ubermensch, the idea was that any individual who could fall into that category would automatically attempt to abuse that power. And that's what the danger was of having an Ubermensch. And the allure of Superman was that he had all of that power and didn't abuse it. Uh, throughout one woman's entire run, she's had super strength, speed, reflexes, agility, stamina, s senses, uh, endurance, like all super versions of that. She's been able to fly since the 1960s. She's a superior hand-to-hand -hand com combatant, uh, you know, all kinds of martial arts, but, you know, like dirty, gritty, like just breaking bones, like just, <laughs> hey, it's really military. Call back to Gal Gadot. Um, and, and a ridiculously... Uh, quick healing factor like she, she gets shot stabbed all that jazz and she's just gonna be healing quite quickly but chances are she'll be blocking it with uh, the, her armlets or her gauntlets her silver gauntlets um, the, those particular gauntlets they've had different permutations but they are you know what I won't even spoil that because it's actually a part of this particular series it's actually amazing uh, that and her sword uh, both of those things we're going to get into that into this into this graphic novel but suffice to say she's got she's got those uh armlets those those gauntlets that she uses to reflect uh, uh attacks projectile attacks she's got uh, the lasso of truth which i alluded to earlier which has its roots in reality to her creator both william marston and elizabeth marston his wife as well as olive byrne they, they the elizabeth and olive were the not only the physical representation on paper of one woman like he put those two images together kind of like the most of the disney cartoons were based on real people like a real guy a real woman and they drew them just like with alex ross all of his paintings he has real life models that model the human form and then he draws them and draws the co the, the costumes onto those those characters it's it's an amazing way to draw it's 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 art it's art it's just you're not saying that that art is more elevated than another you know any way that you draw stuff it's awesome it's art uh, but it's just one way to interpret it. That was the interpretation of Wonder Woman. She wasn't just someone from his dreams, as it were, so that someone could cast doubts to the validity of that type of strong individual. He put together two women who we saw as the strongest women in his life. So strong that he married one of them, and just because of societal mores, couldn't marry the other one. And they had they were just only allowed to live together. But they all loved each other equally. Not only her physical appearance, but her, who she who who the character was as a person. They didn't just come from nowhere. There were these theories that he had as a, as the the author of what Diana was going to be, but a lot of that came from his relationship with his wife and his relationship with uh, their uh, mutual lover. I, I like that better. Like maybe mutual partner, mutual partner, because mutual lover makes it seem like it's just sexual, and to say mistress makes it seem like it's just for one person and not the other. But it was a, it was a triangle. It was a triumvirate, a holy triumvirate, a beautiful triumvirate. But you had, there was a lot of this stuff going on. And, and yes, if I'm not mistaken, yes, it was continuous. Volume one was from summer 42 to February 86. Volume two, February 87. So it was a year period, February 87, April 2006. And then it was a couple months, about four months, August 2006 to July 2010. And then 
they continued volume the volume one incarnation. It's a weird thing. It was a weird switch around August 2010 to October 2011, about a year and some change. And then volume four, September 2011 until now. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing how far this character has come, that she's a part of the original Trinity. You know, you've had so many different writers, uh, Walt Simonson, uh, Martin Pascoe, Jerry Conway, J. Michael Straczynski, uh, Robert Kaniger, Len Wein, shout out to Len Wein, Swamp Thing, yeah, yeah, uh, George Perez, shout out to George Perez, <laughs> Teen Titans, yeah, yeah, um, John Byrne, Phil Jimenez, Walt Simonson, Greg Rucka, Alan Heinberg, Will Pfeiffer, Gail Simone, and now currently Brian Azzarello, and of course the original writer William Moulton Marston. Uh, but you had so many amazing pencilers as well, man. It was crazy. Dick Giordano, Harry G. Peter, the original, Gene Colan, George Perez, uh, pulling double duty, Mike Diodato, John Byrne, Phil Jimenez, Terry Dodson, Aaron Lepresti, Don Kramer, and then the current artists on, on pretty much 24-7 duty, Cliff Chiang, and batting cleanup, which is just a baseball term. I don't mean that in the sense like he's not doing enough. It's just, yeah, artists need to take a break. Uh, Tony Akins, those are the two alternating pencilers. Uh, and then, you know, I don't want to disparage inkers. Uh, you know, Mike Esposito, Dick Giordano, I'm going to name them all. Vince Coletta, Bruce Patterson, Andy Lanning, Michael Dodson, Matt Ryan, interesting, <laughs> clearly a different guy from Constantine. <laughs> Fridays at 10 p.m. on NBC, check your local listings. Uh, in volume four, Cliff Chiang and Dan Green. Cliff Chiang, double duty. Uh, just because inkers don't get enough respect. And colors, uh, Carl Gafford, Alex Sinclair, and Matthew Wilson. Colors just don't get enough respect. I'm sorry. Anchors and colors. Uh, she's come such a long way. And as I said, being a part of the original Trinity, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. Uh, those, those three staples of detective comics. Um, specifically, not even when it was detective comics. It was before that, when it was just uh, National Periodicals and All-American Publications, before they merged and became DC Comics. Uh, they, they, they were. She was a part of the three that brought those companies to such a high prominence that it necessitated a melding of those two companies. I mean, that shows you how important this character is. Um, there's so much more that I can go into the television show, uh, her permutations on Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, the way she was portrayed in the different direct-to-video um, interpretations of her. Uh, when she was on the Super Friends, all that jazz, but that's not what this particular podcast is about. It's about the current, the current permutation. She's an Amazonian, and she's a demigod. She's the daughter of Zeus and Hippolyta, and she lives with the Amazons on Themyscira. Themyscira, again, it goes back to quite literally her first incarnation, the first the first representation, the first mention, the first, um, the first sight that the audience would have gotten, the reader would have gotten of Themyscira was in her first appearance in All-Star Comics number 8, December 1941. Um, it was initially called Paradise Island, uh, but it was renamed in February 1987 at the relaunch uh, of Volume 2 of One Woman in that first issue. It was renamed uh, Themyscira. Uh, Again, there's so much that is attributed to that, but for the most part, keep in mind that Wonder Woman, uh, Hippolyta, her mother, um, uh, oh, 
trying to think what's her name, Hesia, yes, Hesia, which in essence would be like her uh, Wonder Woman's general. Uh, those individuals are what you need to know about Themyscira for now. There's so much more involved with it, um, especially pre-Flashpoint. Uh, they had so many rituals, the Feast of Fire, the Courting Ritual, the Hikeshia, H-I-K-E-T-E-I-A, the Union of with the Earth, the Send Forth, and Death. There, there was so much, but I'm not going into that because it different things come up in different ways in the New 52. And I don't want to cloud your mind with things that don't pertain to the New 52 incarnation. Everything that I've spoken about thus far has to do with the New 52 in, in interpretation of Wonder Woman. Talking about the things that happened pre-Flashpoint is quite literally talking about a, a Wonder Woman from a different universe. It's a different Wonder Woman. Just like you know about M-Theory now, we talk, we, I talk a lot about that kind of stuff in Fair Play Pod. Because it's Mr. Terrific and it's all about quantum physics and quantum theory. You, I'm sure you've heard about M-theory or string theory, this idea of M-theory in essence being a, a multiple amount of universes that are existing uh, in the same space-time, just not uh, being able to be perceived within the individual universes. And string theory being that those individual universes are made up of strings and that they vibrate at a particular frequency and that in essence you could play the universe like an instrument and traverse uh, the universes. That's a very real theory. It may not be um, reproducible in practice. You might not be able to actually do so in a laboratory, but there are scientific equations that have been drawn up that state that there must be some other universes that exist. There are some other theories that say that there's an infinite amount of universes. DC Comics likes to play with that idea, and they started playing with that idea really in the 80s with Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, and I've spoken about that in other podcasts, but to, suffice it to say, talking about any of the previous incarnations of Wonder Woman is not talking about this Wonder Woman. So to talk about all these other characters that really haven't come up yet, I believe Helene comes up, but that might just be the, the movie I'm thinking about. I know Hestia comes up because I remember seeing her. Uh, Pythia might come up because I feel like I've seen that name, but for the most part... Um, Hippolyta, Hestia, because I don't think it's Hestia. I believe it's Hestia, but it could be, he could be Hestia. Damn internet. That was an email. Um, yeah, Hippolyta, Hestia. Um, there's quite a lot of people. We're going to get into that as we go on in the series. Um, but it's it's a real place. It's a real place. The mascara is not just some, like with Krypton, being just a, a fictionalized interpretation of what humanoids could potentially achieve as a scientific society. Gosh darn it, I really want to do a Krypton podcast. That's all about, um, uh, which one call it? Superman, but not going into the graphic novels, just having a quick, I really want to do it like just as a, like a, like a dissertation as it were, an oral dissertation. And I don't mean O-R-A-L, I mean A-U-R-A-L dissertation. Uh, just talking about the the positive aspects of a Kryptonian society and how hubris brought it down, not their theories. Uh, but there's two aspects to Themyscira, as it were. There's the city and the landmass. Okay? 
Themyscira as a city, conversely, was called Pontus, uh, is located around um, Thermodon. Uh, it's it's the modern Termi River. It's in uh, northern Turkey. Yes, northern Turkey. Um, it's mentioned as early as the time of Herodotus. Uh, in the comp in well, let me not even say this. It's mentioned as early as Herodotus, who also mentions the Amazon female warriors from Themyscira. Uh, Ptolemy is undoubtedly mistaken in placing it further west, midway between the Iris and Cape Heraclium. Sorry. Skylax, Skylax calls it a Greek town, but Diodorus states that it was built by the founder of the kingdom of the Amazons. Um, Themyscira itself was previously thought to have been the seat of a bishop, bishopric, but is now uh, not included in the Catholic Church's list of titular sees. A, a bishopric is just a diocese. It's just a it's just a, a location where what usually like within a township. It's usually not like a bunch of different towns. It's usually just a town. Uh, that a bishop resides in and is the religious leader. That bishop is a religious leader. That's the representation of whatever religion they follow. And they report back to that particular religious leader, like cardinals. You know, it's usually some form of Catholicism. So, you know, they report back to cardinals uh, who, I'm sorry, they report back to archbishops who then report to cardinals who report to the Pope. I'm not Catholic. I just try and keep all that stuff in my head. Um, that was the city, and, and, it, and it definitively existed. The name just changed. It, the, the location, you know, that the area still exists. It's not like uh, Atlantis, where it's like, oh, that could have been a real place, but it's sunk. You know, the way that Plato talks about it. A lot of different Greek philosophers talked about it. If you haven't read Plato's Republic, please go read Plato's Republic. It, it should be a prerequisite for every human being. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there was also the entire city-state, as it were. Um, it, it lied between the Iris and Thermodon rivers. And again, that's in northern Turkey. Uh, it was, quote-unquote, uh, a rich and beautiful district, ever verdant, or just, you know, full of greenery, you know, forests and, and plains, you know, which is a great thing to have in, in a township, to have both plains where you could have, uh, you know, houses and, and farmland and then as well to have forests because then you could have wildlife there's wildlife you know they like to hide in the cover of night uh and you know sleep in somewhere that's difficult for a predator to get at them uh to continue and supplying food for numberless numberless herds of oxen and horses the themiscara plain also produced great abundances of grain especially panic and millet and the southern parts near the mountains furnished a variety of fruits such as grapes apples pears and nuts in such quantities that they were suffered to waste on the trees. And that was actually, that's actually a quote from Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound, uh, as well as from a Pliny, the El Pliny the Elder's Naturalist Historia. Uh, Strabo, which is just another philosopher, described uh, a Themyscira plain as the native country of the Amazons. So when you think about the Amazons, from the, the lore of Wonder Woman, a lot of times, I know for me, I just genuinely didn't think they were real. I thought it was, it was completely mythological. But they they actually existed. They were a part of Greek mythology, but they were also a part of classical antiquity. Uh, they were they were also known as the Oyorpata, O-I-O-R-P-A-T-A, in Iranian and Scythian. Um, and 
they they were just they were outstanding they were outstanding um one of one of one of the notable queens was uh Penthesilea sorry Penthesilea uh, she participated in the Trojan War and her sister uh-oh Hippolyta ended up having a magical girdle that was given to her by her father Ares and was the object of one of the labors of Hercules I know you've heard about that before like oh Hercules having to you know get all this stuff to be considered a, a true warrior um I want to pick something up. There was something that I wanted to pick up and, and relay to you guys because it's 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 fascinating. It's fascinating. A lot of this stuff is 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 quite immense. Uh, once I started digging into this and realizing that this this was a real place and there were real people. Um, there 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 were quite a lot of uh, real Amazons. Aegea, who's a queen of the Amazons, who was thought to uh, by some to have been the actual eponym of the Aegean Sea itself, the actual person that the Aegean Sea was named after. Um, there was... I'm genuinely loving it. Lysippe, L-Y-S-I-P-P-E. She was the mother of Tanaeus by Barossos. Her son only venerated Ares and was fully devoted to war neglecting love and marriage. Aphrodite cursed him with falling in love with his own mother. Preferring to, die, preferring to die rather than give up his chastity, he threw himself into the river Amazonius, which was subsequently renamed Tanaeus. Uh, there was a Pantarist, P-A-N-T-A-R-I-S-T-E, who killed Timaeides, um, Timaeides, Timaeides, that's probably better, it's Greek, in the battle between the Amazons and Hercules' troops. Uh, now, you know, I'm sure you're like, oh, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Hercules and the thing about, well, there's this whole thing. Um, like, well, yeah, I kind of want to get to that first. I want to get to this thing with uh, Hercules. Well, it comes up somewhere else, but basically the, the whole idea was Hercules was sent out with Theseus um, to go get these seven things, you know, like the Golden Fleece and... Uh, uh, Medusa's head, you know, to fight the Gorgon. Uh, There's all these things that he had to do, and one of them was to get uh, Hippolyta's girdle. That was, you know, all of those different things were allegories. Okay? And, you know, if you want to look at it this way, Medusa was Medusa. The Gorgon was who she was because of her connection to uh, Aphrodite and a disparity between them. They, they were familial. They had relate. They, they were related to each other, and whereas Aphrodite or Neptune, but at this time it would be Aphrodite, was seen as a um, the the epitome of beauty. Medusa was made to seem as the epitome of um, the opposite of beauty. I'm trying to say that in the nicest way possible. Uh, uh, truth abounds. She was not attractive. She was ugly, but no one would know because it would be turned to stone if they looked at her. The idea behind Medusa was that she genuinely wasn't unattractive. If she was Aphrodite's uh, relation, I want to get that right because I was about to say something like, oh, she's her sister. And I feel like I definitely read that, especially when I was in college. I feel like I read that Medusa was Aphrodite's sister. So I'm going to pull that up 
going to pull it up now. Uh, but the idea was that the character, um, let's, okay, hold on a second. I got this here. Uh, of course it's going to zoom down because it's crazy talk like that. No, I have it wrong. I have it wrong. Yeah, none of her sisters were. Yeah, they were all bizarre sisters. Like the Hesperides and Cilia and Laddon. Yeah, they were all weird people. So I, I must have read it in some fictional account. Um, but the idea was that she was being compared to uh, Aphrodite in one way, shape, or form. Uh, and and one of the curses, because they always did that with Greek gods and goddesses, they were always cursing each other. Um, she got cursed and was made, in essence, permanently single, which in antiquity, really like pre-1950s, like CE, 1950 CE, was seen as a bad thing for men and women, like to be single for the rest of your life. It's like, no, you have to pair off, be fruitful and multiply, you know, even pre-Christianity. Um, so that was seen as a horrible fate, but to top it off, she was turning people into statues. And that was somewhat blasphemous because for the most part, that was reserved for emperors and empresses and goddesses and gods, not for the common man. So those people would be resigned to a fate that was worse than death by just coming near her. You know, because most people, they would just break a statue. You know, people were prone to destroy statues that were um, representations of people that were being worshipped uh, by one group of people and specifically the conquered group of people. If it was just some random statue, people could just be drunk and decide they want to break something. People do it nowadays. Just look at the end of any sports celebration. If that's what goes on and we're supposed to be more enlightened than them, think about a completely illiterate society, save for the rich. <laughs> They're bound to be getting drunk on a much more uh, frequent basis. There's all kinds of fermented wines everywhere and knocking over stuff accidentally and throwing rocks and stuff. It, it was It would get it would get tarnished and they wouldn't have a proper burial that people feel like is necessary for the average human being. So, you know, people would go out of their way to stay away from Medusa. Um, it was, it was a test to see if Hercules could overcome that. And, and the, the, the real aspect of it was for him to try and get to know her, um, and, and perhaps try and overcome that trial without having to kill her. Of course, because it was all about being headstrong and no, no type of submission whatsoever. He just went in, used the shield, uh, had um, her reflection reflected back on her, cut off her head, all kinds of weird stuff. Um, but Hercules or Heracles, it's Hercules in in Latin or in Roman, it's Heracles, H-E-R-A-C-L-E-S in Greek. And for the most part, because his mother was supposed to have been the protector, like his his, his like surrogate mother, as it were, was Hera. She protected Hercules. It was like Heracles is of Hera, as it were. Uh, Zeus being his father, his actual father. Um, the idea was the Amazonians do not really have Congress, whether it's uh, business or pleasure, uh, business or personal, with men. As the myth goes, in some versions of them, no men were permitted to have sexual encounters or reside in, Amazon, in the Amazonian countryside at all. Uh, but once a year, in order to pre prevent the Amazonian race from dying out, they visit the Gargarians uh, that just happened to be a neighboring tri tribe. The male children, who were the results of these particular visits, were either killed, sent back to their fathers uh, amongst the Gargarians, or 
they were exposed in the wilderness and made to fend for themselves. Just think 300. The girls were, but they wouldn't accept them back. The girls were kept and brought up by their mothers and trained in agricultural pursuits, hunting, and the art of war. In some other versions, when the Amazons went to war, they would not kill all the men. They'd take some of them as slaves, and once or twice a year, they'd have sex with said slaves. Um, the idea was, if Heracles could approach Hippolyta and take her garter, which, you know, it's a, it's a symbol for her chastity belt, but in reality it's just a girder, a girdle. A garter is a... No, 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 no. Her girdle. Yeah, not her garter. Her garter is the thing that goes around your leg. Do I have that right? I know I have that right. A garter is the thing that is taken off symbolically at a wedding. A girdle... Yeah, it was her girdle. Her girdle is the thing around the, the waist to squeeze in the form, the waist, and accentuate the bosom. Uh, but it also can be used as protection. Like if it's metal, you know, it's, it's got leather on the inside or leather straps, but metal is used as protection, you know, like against arrows and swords. It's It's got dual purposes. Uh, the idea was, uh, like the, the, the parable in essence behind it was that he would be disrobing an Amazonian. And the thing that made it more potent is that not only was it, it was a woman that was a part of society that in one way, shape or form looked down on mankind, uh, he was, he was, you know, uh, sexualizing that kind of individual uh, by disrobing her. He was also taking away something that she would use as a form of defense in the art of war, thus making her more susceptible to death. Uh, that's what a lot of those different trials had a, a lot of tinge of, had a tinge of, a lot of tinge, that doesn't work, had a tinge of that he was succeeding in... Um, conquering death on multiple occasions because that would spell death if any regular male would decide like yeah I'm just gonna go to the Amazonian t countryside and uh, just go chill over there as a dude I'm just go do that yeah it just it wouldn't happen I'm sorry <laughs> it wouldn't happen but it was it was a real group of people uh, the the exact uh, historical figures who actually lived there can be in debate uh, but but they genuinely existed. In uh, 1542, Francisco de Orellana, Orellana, because it's two L's, uh, he reached the Amazon River, or the Amazonas, and uh, ended up naming it after a tribe of warlike women he claimed to have encountered and fought on the Nahamunda River. It was a tributary of the Amazon. Afterwards, the whole basin and region of the Amazon were named after that one river. Those particular Amazons, that, that tribe, uh, they, they ended up being, um, excuse me, uh, attributed to, like, talked about by Christopher Columbus and Walter Raleigh. The famous medieval traveler John Mandeville mentions them in his book, quote-unquote, Beside the land of Chaldea is the land of Amazonia. This is the land of Femini, F-E-M-I-N-Y-E, capital F. And in that real is all women and no man. Not as some may say that men may not live there, but for because that the women will not suffer no men amongst them to be their sovereigns. Um, there's, there's a huge history behind the Amazonians, and again, I don't want to spoil everything 
uh, or, or give up the ghost as it were. But as I said, there's a lot of um, allegories to, to uh, gender politics when it comes to the Amazons and specifically their representative in fiction, that being Diana of Themyscira. Uh, a, a little uh, Easter egg, uh, the Amazon queen Hippolyta appears in A Midsummer Night's Dream. A Midsummer Night's Dream, William Shakespeare play, um, which could have been uh, what ended up being the catalyst for her mother being Hippolyta because she was more of a known figure of the Amazons. Um, there was something I was going to mention about, yeah, there was something I was going to mention about uh, Themyscira, about there being a, um, a bishopric or, or bishopric uh, there, and it was it was attributed to um, the uh, Catholic, the Catholic, Catholic Encyclopedia, the New Advent Catholic Encyclopedia. Um, it was actually claimed in that 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 particular country was, quote, one of the richest and most beautiful in the world, especially at that time. Um, but uh, I'm not going to go into that because I want to make sure that <laughs> at the end of the day, we actually get into the issue because this this, this podcast isn't, uh, with this, this entire podcast definitely isn't this, but this episode isn't just about the origins of one woman, but it definitely is, is the starting point. I want people who who get into this to kind of know what they're getting into, um, what some of the background is, and perhaps have some of their interests um, perked up. That was a horrible word to use. Have their, in, their interest um, bloom, their interest blossom. Even that sounds like it swung the pendulum. Uh, peak, there you go, P-I-Q-U-E. Have their interest peaked. Um, so that they not only will go and, and read more of this particular graphic novel, but go into uh, the history of some of the characters and where they come from. And so we we find the the cover displaying as all the number ones did in the New 52 when it introduced this new universe of displaying the main character in media res. It's a beautiful cover. I'm going to be talking about Cliff Chiang's art ad nauseum because it's the only reason why I became such an adherent. Well, that's not right at all because of everything I've said before. It's, it's, it's a main, it's a, it's a big reason why the main reason is because of my childhood fascination, but a main reason why I picked up this series, because I could have very easily picked up the pre flashpoint one woman. And it was years and years and years of her existence at the time, I guess it would have been 69 years because it was three years ago, so 69 years of her existing. Uh, but, it was just, it wasn't even the cover. I saw the cover and I was like, oh, that's cool. But it was this story. It was this first issue. I was like, oh my gosh, like this guy drew all this stuff and this story that Mr. Azarello is telling, like it's just, it's, it's amazing. It was just, it was so much going on if you were willing to pay attention to it. And I will say, because I'm privy to what ends up happening later on and you listening might be as well, those trees in the background, that particular depiction uh, ends up rearing its ugly head again much, much later on. Just keep that in mind, especially the prophecy that gets talked about here. But you see, you know, she's clearly not indestructible, but but she's nigh invulnerable. Um, 
and and on her on her thighs on her arms you know they on on her on her gauntlets there's blood and, and there are cuts all along her skin like she can be harmed but you can see with her gauntlets she can break these arrows that are gigantic like if it, to go to scale and one woman if i'm not mistaken is six feet tall if i'm not mistaken those arrows are like three foot long they're, they're borderline spears but you can see that they've got um what is it i always forget the name of it the parts of the arrow i know the arrow and the arrow head but the part with the feathers on the back it's just gigantic gigantic arrows and she's just charging headlong and about literally jumping into the air towards something like i don't care if if i get damaged in this battle i don't I, I, be damned as long as i get to kill you um and just it's it's awesome it's just it's freaking awesome uh, so we we start the story first page look at that two and a half hours into the episode that's right that's how that's how this that's how this host rolls baby why did, why did i even try and say something awesome and stumble all over myself that's how i do things there you go I can speak proper English somehow, sometimes. Um, in Singapore, Singaporean skyline, um, we get a couple of um, a couple of socialites interacting with this completely obsidian-colored uh, being in a three-piece suit, complete with his uh, buttoned-up vest. I guess that's the third piece of a suit. Never understood why a suit, like the three-piece suit, doesn't include the shirt or the or the socks. Like, wouldn't it be then like a five-piece suit? Because they have to kind of match them or whatever. Anyway, um, everybody's admiring the view. It looks beautiful. Um, and I gotta say, I'm going to get into who this character is. I'm probably going to get into that later. Because it kind of spoils it at this point of the story. But what I, what I do want to bring up is that he says that it's the talling... The, the, tall, the tallest building in the world. I was fascinated by that. Cause I was like, oh, is it? Because I don't know what the tallest building in the world is anymore. I thought it was somewhere in Dubai, but then I was like, oh, no, it's not Dubai. There's a panorama of Singapore's skyline at dusk. And there is a building that looks somewhat similar to what's depicted inside this issue. But I will say that um, I couldn't find this building. With, with this somewhat uh, seashell-type curve that goes up to the top. The only thing that I found that was somewhat similar, because in Singapore, they have this limit where buildings can't be taller than 119 feet. Um, and, and thusly, there's this bizarre race to build more skyscrapers. Um, the, the entire country or city-state, as it states here, of Singapore has over 4,300 completed high-rises with most of them being in the downtown area. But there are 59 skyscrapers that are taller than 459 feet, which if you go by the, the, the basically standard metric that each story is 10 feet, it's technically 59 skyscrapers that are all taller than 49 stories. I'm sorry, it's taller than 46 stories. Uh, so they're 46 stories and, and taller. It's just kind of ridiculous how tall they get. The only one that I could find that looked kind of similar to this particular building and looked like it as well had a pool on the top was, of those 59, the Ocean Financial Center. It's an office building. Um, it's built on the site of the former Ocean Building, which has since been demolished. Um, it has a, a, a large solar array on top, of this, on top of it, and 
it was that particular land that building was acquired uh by k k right k r e i t or k dash r e i t asia um from keppel land for more than two billion dollars um it's got 43 floors it's roughly 804 feet tall or 80 stories about 80 stories even though it says 43 floors this you know there's bound to be floors you can't go to and aspects of it that are just the top but it's 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 the only building that looks the most like it um with that type of curve and especially the way that the sides look why I'm, why did i look for that why did i point that out just because i like to find the correlations between these fictional representations in real world uh, locations and here ocean financial center actually exists coordinates are um uh, one degree by 17 feet 6.34 inches north 130 103 degrees 51 feet 8.3 inches east that's how you read that um, just so you know it's a god's comma and rabbit ears god's comma is a foot rabbit ears is inches when it comes to uh like it's it's correct but it's not correct whatever it's it's a whole thing um, but it's a real place. It's a real place. Um, Pelly Clark, Pelly Architects, where the architect and developer was Keppeland International Limited. And if you want to check stuff out, Kepcorp, K-E-P-C-O-R-P.com. It's like cool information about the place. Um, yes, I'm going to get into who this character is a little bit later. Because it's a bit of a reveal. Because I want to talk about something. Yeah, I want to talk about... Um, this particular representation when we get there. Uh, but there's another individual that has a lot more in-depth aspects and has a very, very big, well, actually every character that's introduced in this issue plays a huge, a huge part uh, in, in Diana's life uh, henceforth. From, from my recollection, you see these people quite often. Um, on this page, on page two, the digital page, um, it looks like he's going to push them off the building. It's pretty gruesome. And there's two panels that are completely wordless, and it looks like he lifts all three of them up completely out of their shoes. And there's this image of these, gla these champagne glasses just falling, you know, from the skyscraper. I mean, it really makes it seem like it's Taiwanese, like whether you're looking at that cityscape and that first image, I'm, I'm sorry, Singaporean, uh, that first cityscape, or you're looking at this final image at the bottom right on page two, a lot of their skyscrapers are less than a block away from each other. Like they're so close that like it's just like damn near an alleyway. It's this, it's this drive, this determination to show architectural achievement. It's, it's, it's throughout humanity. It's not just one country or another. People do it all over the globe. If they have the financial means, they will go out of their way to build taller buildings to go as close to the sun as they can get as, as far into the clouds as possible, if not attempting to go farther. People just like doing it. Instead of growing up, they like to grow up. People attribute it to uh, fallacies, but that's a fallacy. It's just innovation. That's all. There are female architects, people. So we, we flash forward uh, across the globe to Virginia from... Singapore. Did I really just mess this up again? No, it's Singapore. 
Because Maeda was like, it's not Singapore, it's Taiwan. It's weird. Uh, to this barn, this flash of green light. And a woman with a cape, really a cloak, made, you know, adorned with peacock feathers. Uh, what, what I love in this image, though, it's like, yes, this the background with these leaves rustling with the barn in the first image, that established, the establishing shot, that's awesome. Uh, the the This cloaked individual just kind of just cold chilling in the background. And now I just realized there's somebody else I'm going to have to pay attention for so I can point it out to you, to you guys. Um, yeah, because I didn't look for this individual and I'll bring it up later. Because it ties into darker corners. You know where I'm going with this. Um, that image is cool. This individual appearing inside this stable. But what I really like is like subtle things. You know, the bottom left is completely wordless. Bottom left, you see this individual's legs with this green toenail polish. And then right to the right of it, you see these horses' legs. Like, it's just, I love that, that weird, like, that type of imagery. It's kind of almost like a borderline match cut. Like this reverse image so you have the this caucasian woman as it were a goddess because it's I'm not spoiling anything um with the right leg kind of to the side you know more prominent than the left like the back leg being used for for getting a footing <laughs> play on words um, and then the reverse image the white horse's legs being somewhat similar but that's what the, what you're supposed to believe that this person has good intentions the black horse, those legs match up more. Like it's just a cool image, and like that's it. it seems like there, there was a lot more, uh, not thought, but they were trying to convey an emotion there. Whereas what we see on the floor, like all these weapons, just kind of being left behind by this peacock uh, cloak. Like literally, it's it's peacock feathers. It's so awesome, um, and and they do this really cool thing with the scythe. I just again, you just you just feel like you're watching a movie. You're not reading a graphic novel, which is a difficult thing. You know, a lot of graphic novels, it's very static images. And you look at this bottom frame on page four. That horse, that horse is genuinely afraid, and this individual has absolutely no fear. Absolutely no fear. And from the way it's being depicted, they are completely naked. You don't see that. But there's this one image where you're like, oh wait, I think that's kind of cleavage. But that's not what this is all about. It's as if they're they're coming to this area, whether it be this area, this country, or Earth, just to do this one particular thing. And this thing ends up happening. Now, on page six, waiting for this thing to pop up. Yes, page six. This thing happens that is a callback to, you see this kind of thing happen later on. I really don't want to spoil it. But you see it in issue 34. I just read that last week. Uh, it didn't come out last week, but I, I'm just so behind because of the podcast. You see something like this, okay? And it's amazing. I feel like so many more things should do it. Uh, it was in uh, Hellboy. The first Hellboy. Um, I just I feel like I should see that more often in bizarre things that are about mythological creatures. and Hmm. I don't know, it's 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 creepy and gruesome and oh, it gave me the very, very weird feeling when I uh, when I read it the first time, I didn't even notice it, I'm going to be honest. The second time I noticed it, the third time I saw, oh, this is something different going on. And then there's just this, again, another establishing shot, like, oh, we're outside this house. There's the barn in the background. Everything's normal. Nothing's out of the ordinary. And then you get this dude 
with a bowl hat. It's like, oh, man, we got we to get out of here now. And we get introduced to Zola. Zola, uh, there, there could be a real-life allegory. I haven't seen it yet. I might be able to clean up that mistake, that faux pas on my part, in the next episode. But as far as I know, there's a completely original character. Uh, who, again, another individual who plays a very pivotal role in this series. This individual in her house is apparently just appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> he wasn't there for a long time. She's She's got a, a, a pump-action shotgun pointed right at him. Like, you need to get the hell out of the house. Like, she really doesn't want to shoot him. She just wants him to go. And he attempts to save her life. And this is the first time that her life is genuinely saved. And we get this depiction. Those These arrows have to... They're, they're borderline spears. They're ridiculous. It seems like they're, they're made out of, like, full-on branches not even shaved down it's, it's messed up um they make their own sound effect usually when you see a bow and arrow go somewhere in in an issue you don't see any onomatopoeias um and the time you get a full-on whoosh i don't think a tiny arrow would sound like whoosh it would sound like like it, it wouldn't have the the sh at the end it just seems that way like a that's the sound effect kind of like almost like a silencer um, anytime you hear, whoosh, that's a gigantic arrow <laughs> that's meant to like go through shields. And this one goes straight through the sternum. Straight through. And we get some centaurs. Again, I don't want to spoil anything. Just full on splash page. We get these centaurs. Now, I was fascinated by that because it's like, okay, I know that that, that person that with the peacock feathers was Hera. Okay, what in the world does Hera have to do with centaurs? Now, as I've stated, you probably have heard of Hera before. If you watched Hercules Legend, The Legendary Journeys, uh, or if I'm not mistaken, she was in Xena the Warrior Princess as well, but she was definitely in Hercules The Legendary Journeys. And her depiction there, uh, her, her affinity was with uh, peacock feathers, that eye. It's not a peacock feather, a green. It almost looks like antifreeze, where the eye is just a bunch of different colors, but green on the outside. Uh, she's normally she's normally in Mount Olympus, but she's attributed to cows, lilies, the flower, lotuses, cuckoos, the birds, uh, pomegranates, um, diadems, scepters, panthers, thrones, lions, and peacock feathers. Um... She's usually attributed to being betrothed to Zeus, their husband and wife, and that their parents, because there's a lot of intersibling sexuality in ancient Greece and then subsequently in ancient Rome, really in all ancient societies, it's not just the Greeks and the Romans, uh, Sumerians, Egyptians, Akkadians, they all fucked each other. Um, but their parents were Kronos and Rhea, the, the, the Titans. The Titans had gods for children, and then the Titans were killed by their children. Um, Hera's brothers and sisters, Poseidon, Hades, Demeter, Hestia, and Zeus. So is Hestia, because Hestia is a goddess, yeah. There's no way in the world Diana's general is a goddess, so it's Hestia with two S's. There you go. So I knew I would get that cleared up. Um, and her, her children really... Did, the two children that are going to come up in this series, Ares and Hephaestus. Ares, the god of war. We will get into that when it's necessary, when it's time in this series. And Hephaestus, 
really the god of weaponry. He he wielded the fire. I was going to say the god's fire. Um, but he was he was a blacksmith for the most part. It's the best way to say that. he's a blacksmith. That's his most of his interpretation, his interpretations. And he's usually depicted with, you know, a hammer, an anvil, tongs, you know, like building something. Um, she's Hera's got a huge connection to a lot of different characters that are going to come up in this series. But for the most part, Hades, um, Ares, Hephaestus, Demeter, they're, they're Poseidon, they're going to come up again. Um, there's a huge backstory with Hera. Um, she's normally depicted as already sitting on a throne, you know, maybe perhaps having a pomegranate in her hand. Um, and coincidentally, she's the emblem of fertile blood and death and a substitute for opium. This, this idea that she, in essence, is the opiate of the masses, that she can calm you into sleep, that if you have this immense pain, she can bring down that pain because, for the most part, she's a goddess of marriage and birth. I wanted to say that because I didn't want to say pain is associated with women because she's also the goddess of women, in essence, Zeus being the god of man uh, and, and Hera being the goddess of women. Uh, she, she's there to bring comfort during childbirth, comfort during a tumultuous marriage for the woman. Um, that was her original incarnation, what she was there for. But there's been so many other ways that she's been interpreted. Now, I had to go through the Italian version of Wikipedia to get some more information that was a little bit more pertinent to this particular incarnation of Hera. When I was trying to figure out exactly what, in what way Hera was associated with centaurs. Uh, not minotaurs, and just in case you're unsure that a minotaur has a beast head, a human torso, and, and beast legs, like goat legs. That's a minotaur, in essence, or bull legs. So they've got like a bull's head, a human chest, and human arms, and, and torso, and then bull's legs. That's That's a minotaur. A centaur... It has there's one of two things, <clears throat> either a human head and a human torso and a horse's body, like like a horse's legs. So it'll be where the waist, the belly button cuts off. You have, you know, four horse legs in the back and all that jazz. Or it's a some permutation of an, a monster's head, like a, like a, not even say that's kind of racist against monsters, against beings that are other than human. Um, kind of a, an, an amalgamation between like a horse and another animal as a head, and then a human torso and arms, and then that horse thing in the back. This thing that's being depicted in this graphic novel is a centaur. I was trying to figure out what in the world she has as a, a correlation between Hera and centaurs. Like, why would they show that in this first depiction? It actually exists. It's fascinating. Okay. Normally, and this is, this is paraphrasing here, um, normally Hera is depicted as an individual who is constantly jealous of Zeus going down to mankind and having sex with all these women and having all these kids like Hercules and, and if I'm not mistaken um, I was going to say Perseus but I think Perseus counts too Hercules, Perseus who's the other one? Oh come on Achilles, I was going to say I played him in a play like super off-broadway play I couldn't remember why I couldn't remember him uh, Achilles, yeah um, 
that there'll be these half gods, these demigods all over the place because Zeus couldn't keep it in his pants or in his goose feathers because he would turn into a goose and bone people. I feel like that's another like weird, like something that you see out of a romance novel. Like why would any person in their right mind write a story where a goose has sex with a woman? Birds have tiny penises and a lot of birds have corkscrew penises. It's it's clearly some kind of weird perversion of sex and that the neck is being used as the phallus. Oh, I'm sorry, I took it there for you guys, but that's really why they do it. It's just weird. Um, she's depicted as somebody who's really jealous all the time, but according to the Italian interpretation, which is, you know, in Rome, I'm so, whoa, sorry about that, is where the Romans would have been. <laughs> Rome is in Italy. Uh, duh. Um, she herself was not known to be a f completely faithful. Is, there's so many interpretations that show that they were equally unfaithful to each other. Even though the interpretation that got written about more often was that, oh no, Zeus was the philanderer and she was just really wanting him to come back to Mount Olympus and stop going down to earth and consorting with humans. So she would take out a vengeance on humankind. But there's a lot more of a, a three-dimensional character behind who Hera is as an individual. Some of the people she was known to get with <laughs> get down with were Myriad, Eurymedin, which is which was a giant, who with that union between Hera and Eurymedin, they had Prometheus, the Titan that was punished by Zeus to have his um his innards eaten out by a crow. Uh yeah, weird. Uh Dionysus and Kronos. Weird. That's her father. So she gets mad at her brother for having sex with all these people. She has sex with her father. That sexual congress is her two people. Typhoon, a monster, just a general, a, a general like beast that was in the, in the in the purview of Poseidon, and Hephaestus, the blacksmith of the gods. Her son is her brother. Thanks a lot, history. But what was fascinating was her congress with Ixion, I X I O N. He was the king of the Lapiths. Their um, congress gave birth to the first centaur. So she, in essence, as if this goddess was to have a power set and be able to call upon things that were um, aspects of her past, her being the creator of this species would allow her to have dominion over the, that species. Now, how did those two people end up getting together? Well, 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 well. Um, Ixion was known to be somewhat like uh, Zeus in the sense that he was always trying to bone a bunch of other people. All right? Um, he ended up... Um, uh, he was a philanderer. A philanderer. Uh, did a lot of bad stuff. Uh, did one horrible thing one day, and Zeus was like, Oh, no, it's cool. Um, I forgive you. Um... I know that you're kind of messing around with my wife, but uh, why don't you come have dinner? We're going to have a banquet. So everybody used to be big on banquets back in the day in, in history. You know how it is. Whether you're talking about ancient Greece, ancient Rome, or northern Africa, or you're talking about, um, oh, why did I forget the name of that story? You know what I'm talking about. That story with that huge beast. And, oh, man. Because I'm just thinking of Liam Neeson saying, release the Kraken from the new interpretation of Clash, Clash of the Titans. 
but there was also a screaming thing. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I'm thinking Ganymede and Gollum, and that's not right. But there was that beast story. Oh, what is it? If I would just shut up for a second, I can remember, but having this dead air is not good for a podcast. The name of that character, and there's this huge story. Like You started with an oral story that we get told in taverns. And there was a beast that was coming to kill this one guy. And he killed the beast. And then the mother got mad. And she was the same kind of beast and came to kill them. And they killed a bunch of people. I cannot believe I can't remember the name of it. Russell Crowe was in the movie. I feel like Russell Crowe was the bad guy. And they had this weird CGI thing. Came out at the same time as Alexander. Another weird CGI melding movie. Um, anyway, I'll remember at a later time. I'm thinking Persephone, but that's not right. Um, but anyway, he came to the banquet. But funnily enough, instead of just eating with them, he went off and tried to fool around with Hera. And Hera was like, all right, cool, let's do this. And it actually went down. They had sex. Zeus got pissed off. But because he knew that Hera was, you know, she was her own woman, wanted to do her own thing. Zeus ended up making a cloud. It was weird. He ended up sent, like turning a woman into a cloud called Nephele, N-E-P-H-E-L-E, and pushed the cloud towards... I know this is really weird, but pushed the cloud towards Ixion. Ixion tried to touch her, and Zeus noticed it. Like He was like, oh, see, look, you can't keep your hands off anything. If you, if you think it even has any semblance of a pussy, you're going to try and fuck it. You know, so he automatically got super ticked off and took Ixion, Ixion, I-X-I-O-N, took him to Hermes. Look at that, bring it up again, Hermes. Took him to Hermes to get him tortured. The way that they tortured him, they tied Ixion to a wheel of fire that ran nonstop in the sky. Now, a way you can have a, a correlation between what a wheel of fire would be in ancient Greece, Apollo was thought to ride a chariot ride a chariot across the sky. It was so bright that it just looked like a glowing ball, hence the sun. The idea is that Ixion is on one of the wheels, quite literally like the Vitruvian man, strung up perpetually on fire because he was a god could not be killed, perpetually on fire every day, a part of the boiling sun. Messed up. Messed up. But again, that's how Hera has some kind of connection to centaurs and, and why that particular beast would have been called up to help in this attack. Uh, the individual that got hurt, and I mentioned him a little bit earlier, was Hermes. Um, why am I bringing up Hermes' background now? There's a lot that has to do with him, and I'll probably go into a lot more of it at a later date. But there's a way that the, the action is twisted around. There's a teleportation that occurs. Hermes is known as the messenger of the gods, as well as an emissary. So any kind of, um, whether it's, you know, uh, information that needs to be transmuted between, like from one god to another, Hermes, or Mercury in Latin, or Roman, uh, he would be the one that would bring that information back and forth. Or, kind of like the angel Gabriel in uh, Judeo-Christian beliefs, any information that needs to come from Mount, Mount Olympus to humanity and isn't going to be delivered through like swift vengeance through like Ares or 
or uh, love potions and the like through Aphrodite. If it's just information, it would be Hermes that would bring that information from Mount Olympus to humanity. He was also an individual that, in essence, was a ferryman. Shout out to Ferryman Radio. Ferrymanradio.org. Um, shepherd, shepherded uh, souls from this plane of existence to the afterlife. Either, uh, well, really to Hades. Because there was Hades and there was uh, Lysium. There you go, is the other one. Um, Hades is for the bad people. And depending on your interpretation, seven circles of hell or nine circles. Uh, and Elysium was kind of like a purgatory, but for the good people. Like there was going to be a, a, another battle between good and evil later on down the line that would kind of end time, as it were. But until then, there was a good place where you could go and live this this time loop of happiness. And that's what Elysium is for the most part. And Hermes was kind of the go-between for his his... Uh, the way that he's normally attributed or the symbols that are attributed to him um, are the rooster and the tortoise, um, like a pouch, having winged sandals, sandal, you know, sandals with wings, a hat with wings, uh, a herma, and a herma, what's the best way to say this? Um... It's weird. It, for the most part, it's 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 a sculpture. It's 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 a sculpture. Like it's it's like a stone that just has a head. It's weird. And and like okay, just think of a, a column, like a square rectangle, and the only thing that's depicted is a chiseled out like a head, and maybe just above the chest, just the head and neck, and no shoulders, no arms, no anything else, just the head and the genitals. It's a weird, weird thing, but that's what he's attributed with. I don't know, so sue him? Don't sue me, I don't know, it's weird. But he's also attributed with the herald staff, which was the Greek Karakian, or, you know, Latin, the Caduceus. You know, the, the two snakes wrapped around a staff with wings. Um, that particular thing, the Caduceus, is... A callback to when to get this right to Moses and uh, the, the whole thing with Moses and the, the the Pharaoh was Ramses yes Pharaoh Ramses and I believe it was Pharaoh Ramses the um, second the whole thing I mean yes there are other interpretations that people say like oh well it really came from this or it came from that but there's a correlation between the caduceus and its ability um you know okay it's the best way to say this the caduceus has two snakes it's got its correlations usually tied to ancient greece there's also the rod of asclepius who's a part of that whole parthenon of people of people boning each other and they're all related he was a rod with one snake. A lot of times, people will conf conflate the two snake thing with the rod with medicine. I wasn't going down that route. I was talking about the rod that Moses had that he turned into a snake before Ramses to prove that God existed. The idea was 
you could have the rod and the snake and show that you were God incarnate or a God incarnate. It's just an interpretation of what it is. That being said, um, his, his picture, his, his depiction is usually, like I said, those wings and the snakes kissing each other. That particular image is what's being portrayed as the thing that's being used as the go-between from Virginia, where they are, to an apartment. An apartment building in a city. Damn it, I was really trying to stall there, and the app got all funky. Uh, the, the resting place in London. There we go. I knew it was London, but I didn't want to say it, and I was wrong. Uh, this beautiful, just I love the way that they just have these plain yet ornate drawings and especially with Cliff Chiang it's just it's so much going on it's amazing these two light sources on the wall uh, one on the wall going in one direction the floor going in a completely different direction and we get our first introduction to Wonder Woman half asleep in her bed and instead of sexualizing her and showing her in some kind of poses or completely naked she's, she's dressed up like literally was getting ready to kill Zola like what the hell are you doing in my place and she notices the object and clearly sees that it has something to do with Hermes. And it's like, okay, so yeah, my name's Diana. I'm going to help you out, you know, because clearly you're wrapped up in some stuff that's got to involve me. So, you know, I'm going to, she didn't even say it, but like she goes and gets dressed and it's awesome. We see this Easter eggs in her closet. It's got the tiara. It's got the helmet. Got a sword, got an axe, got a shield. Like, it's all this stuff. Like, yeah, she's bad ass, man. It is awesome. And I love this. Like, sexuality, man, is the greatest thing in the world. You can be sexual without having sex. And I think that's the big thing that people have a, a weird harumph about. That people being naked automatically means that they're submitting. No. How about the idea that someone being naked denotes that you've got to submit to their will because that you're now powerless? That's the idea behind this. Diana is not weaker by having no clothes on. She sleeps naked. She sees no need to put on some kind of accoutrement to battle against the day because she has no reason to fear the night. But that fear is tested when an individual lit quite literally appears in her home. And now she's got to go out for battle. I don't know why I just pronounced battle like battle. That was weird. Um... But she's completely open with her sexuality. Like, I'm not going to have sex with you. Like, I need to change my clothes, but I'm not going to tell you to turn around. Like, what the hell? Especially since given her background, you know, what Wonder Woman stands for. This is a fellow woman. This is a sister. You know, not, not, uh, not genetically, but of, the, of, of gender. You know, they, they are kin in that regard. So, they, you know, she's just changing into some other clothes. She's going to tell her to turn around. We'll see later on that... Um, not in this issue, and, and definitely not having anything to do with nudity per se, but expected gender roles are brought up, and she very quickly dashes those. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't rock that. I don't roll that way. And it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to be that way. And Zola automatically sees. So clearly up to this point in the story, at this point of the flashpoint, or after the flashpoint, Diana is known as Wonder Woman. And she corrects her. It's Diana. Like, my name's Diana. Um... But she's known. This isn't like the first appearance of Wonder Woman in the world, which again, I like. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, if you think about the Trinity, when this came out, when Batman 
uh, Superman and Wonder Woman came out as their first issues in, in September 2011, it wasn't their first appearances. I mentioned that in, ooh, Bennett and the Queen. Yeah, it was the, the latest episode. And in, in um, oh man, Gouge Away. I don't know why I was going to say something else. It's Gouge Away. Um, Superman's exploits five years in the past were in action comics, but his present day wasn't his, the first time he was Superman. He was already Superman. Um, and and people were kind of like, oh, this superhero, like, this is crazy. He's here. But his first appearance in Metropolis, that was five years prior in action comics. Batman had already been in Gotham City and had already been through a couple of Robins and all the, the crazy exploits there. You know, and just a quick side note, people say a lot of stuff about like the different Robins, but time isn't, doesn't play out as linear, linearly as it does in, in the real world, in our world. In these fictional accounts, these issues come out month to month with the exception of Future's End, which is amazing if you're not already reading it, that's week to week, Batman Eternal, which is week to week, and World's End, um, Earth 2 World's End, that's week to week now. Um, with the exception of those, and those have like a span of like a couple days here and there, for the most part, um, it's kind of the same for these other issues, even though they don't come out in publication on a week to week. You have these one woman issues that'll come out month to month, but between each issue, you know, it's, it's, it's chronological. So one issue could be over the span of like three, four days. One issue could just be one day. So you could have 12 issues that in real time takes a year to get through. Like it takes you a year to be able to read all those issues because you have to wait for them to come out. But in the span of the graphic novel itself, it could be no more than 28 days. It could be the span of a month. So in publication terms, a year could go by, but in the Batman series itself, it could have only been a month's worth of crime fighting or two months or three months. So if it's five years, and this is going on a Time Lord kind of thing, Doctor Who, shout out to all my uh, Doctor Who fans out there. What, what? Um... The idea could be, or definitely is, not even could be, it definitely is that in the world of Batman, if it's been five years in the world of Batman, then if you expand that out and if every month is one year in our real time, then that means every Batman time, it's like every year for Batman is 12 years for us. So every five years could end up being 60 years of Batman being Batman. Clearly, that's not the case because you'll have issues that'll be over the span of like a couple hours, and that'll be a couple days, you know. But it's never like, oh, each issue is a month separated within that time period. So, if Batman's career is five years of having different Robins, then that means in our real time, it could have been like the interpretation of what that is, even though it took us, let's say, it could take 10 years for us to read it because of how long it takes for those issues to come out. Let's say they did come out. You know, we're talking about like we pick up at the flashpoint. Let's say we didn't pick up at that point. We picked up like years before. It could end up being 30, 40, 50, 60 issues of adventures with him having one Robin and then another Robin and another Robin. It could be 100, 200 issues. It could have taken 200, taken 200 issues for there to have been a Dick Grayson and a Tim Drake and a Damian Wayne. And why am I forgetting the other one? Red Hood. Tim Drake is Red Robin. Damian Wayne is Batman's son, like blood son Damian Wayne. It's between uh, Talia Al Ghul and uh, whatchamacallit, Bruce Wayne. Uh, Dick Grayson of the Flying Graysons and the Red Hood. And I always forget his name because I, 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 I wasn't reading Batman when the Red Hood came around. I, I, I came to that after the fact. 
Um, but all that could have happened in the span of like 200 issues that in real time, the, the time that we're witnessing is five years, but it could have taken five years for those 200 issues to come out, if that makes sense to you. Again, it doesn't mean for the 200 issues to be published in that time period, 200 issues in our real time is what, like 20 years, something like that. It's a long time, like pushing 20 years if you're doing it monthly. Um, a little bit less than that, like 15 years. Um, probably a little less than that. But you know what I'm saying. Um, so it's totally plausible for these characters, especially the Trinity, to have existed within this new 52 universe and, and not have to have their origin stories be in their first issue. They could have already existed for, in the context of the story, three, four, five years and have all these exploits and just have it where we pick up with them is where the, you know, the, the shit hits the fan. And that's clearly what's going on here because she's having people arrive in her home. They shouldn't know where she is from what it seems like the way that she reacts to it. But because of how things go down, she's like, oh, this has to do with my family. You know, and we get this beautiful image, just a bloodied feather, no words, just a feather with just some spots, watercolor spots at that. Just amazing freaking art, man. And one woman just noticing like, oh, this is all, like, I love this chart. I don't even want to spoil it. No, I will, because this is just solidifying her character. Uh, they end up getting transported. I don't want to explain how, because that's kind of really spoiling it. They get transported again. And one woman says, and I quote, well, that was stupid. Zola says, yeah, there's no way I was going to be left. And then one woman says, I meant of me. You know, she's so sure of what she needs to do next, uh, especially when it comes to battle. And she was like, oh, I made a mistake here. Like I should have, <laughs> I should have realized that something like that was going to happen. Like it wasn't going to be just cut and dry. And then we get her first moment in battle. It harkens to the cover, um, which is just amazing. I just love the fact that Cliff Chiang does both the art and the cover because you don't have the cover giving everything away. Like you don't know any of this stuff going on in the issue just by looking at the cover. And that's amazing. And again, we get the second time that Zola's life is saved. First by Hermes, by a phallic instrument, as it were, and then Wonder Woman, you know, by, you know, being a, she was being attacked by a phallic instrument and using her, her wits, her wherewithal to defend Zola against this. Uh, the Hera's minions, as it were, come out. And we get a cool image. I love this image. Like I totally missed the first time around, page 16. Uh, that thing happens where like somebody, somebody's on the ground and something is coming at you, like hitting, like maybe usually you see like a big axe or a hammer and they swing down and you move to the side and you come back and they swing down again, and you move to the side. Like, I don't know. I always like the way that looks. And they have that image, like three panels, the horse overhead coming down, the, I'm sorry, the centaur overhead, the hose coming down and she dodges to the side and then it stink, stamps as she dodges again to the side. Like, I love that kind of stuff, man. And, and, you know, Zola being pursued and we see this, this, inner monologue going, or really this dialogue going on, the green being someone, and the black, from what we saw, being the individual that was all obsidian in the beginning of the issue. And I mean full-on obsidian, I don't mean black, I mean obsidian. And and I haven't even mentioned it for this podcast, I don't think, I am, excuse me, well, I haven't eaten yet today, I am black. Um, it only matters because of different email conversations I've had in other podcasts, so I've talked about it. Uh, but 
I feel that needs to be pointed out because I feel like I might have said some things before. It's like, oh, is this guy racist or whatever? No. And again, that's not a justification just in case I said something that makes it seem like, oh, you said something messed up towards one race or another is not justifiable. It's not okay or justifiably said because you are black, because you're a black American. Uh, it's not okay now that you said those things. No, it's just softening the blow. I'm not a Caucasian male saying messed up things about races that are sometimes deemed by that particular sector of society as lesser than. No, I am within that sector of society that has been deemed over the millennia time and time again as lesser than and trying to show people that that's not the case. We are all capable of equality. We may not all be equal at the onset, but if given the proper tools, we can rise up to the occasion and play on the same battlefield. Come on, let's play chess together. That's life. But we see this dialogue between these two characters, the Obsidian character and these voices that are giving out this prophecy that I had no idea was going to come about. Like, I should have known because it's just great writing, but this stuff plays out, man. Over the next couple of issues, all this stuff starts coming to pass. And again, it kind of has something to do with this battle, but it has nothing to do with it. This battle is just between... Even though the reason why Hera is there, the reason why these centaurs are there, the reason why Wonder Woman's there, um, Diana. I, mean, I think I'm going to just keep calling her Diana because she is Wonder Woman, but that's the name of the graphic novel. And she prefers to be called, the character prefers to be called Diana, and there's a level of respect that, that must be given, understandably so. Um, it's just like with Iron Man. A lot of times nowadays in the graphic novel, as far as I know, he's referred to as Tony because of the movies. He's referred to as Tony more often than being called Iron Man. It's like, hey, Iron Man. It's like, oh, Tony this or Tony that. And him calling her Pepper this, Pepper that, instead of calling her Miss Potts, the way he did in the 80s and whatever. Anyway, um, even though they're all there because of the same reasons, the, the, well, the same focal point, just for different reasons, the focal point being Zola, the conversation that's occurring in these word rectangles has nothing, is not directly referencing the moment that's occurring. It's really referencing things that will happen after these moments. Uh, and then one, one woman's just kicking ass, headbutts one of the 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 centaur is just it's it's awesome it's awesome and something ends up getting talked about a little bit later perhaps i'll get to that but she rides this horse man like rides the front of this horse like it's freaking awesome like i want to see this rides this horse flips off of it throws a sword like it's just bad already man like i really just want to play freaking um not dc well i want to play dc universe online again but that's going to be a whole bunch of hoops to jump through to be able to play that again. But uh, the um, the iPad game, I want to play as Wonder Woman now. <laughs> uh, oh, Injustice, yes, Injustice, Gods Among Us. Um, God, I don't want to play that game. I just I don't have a console. Because uh, I'm not rich. I've said that in another podcast too. I am not rich. <laughs> I live quite the meager existence. Um, uh, but I, damn, I, I, I love DC Comics. I really do. DC, Vertigo, I love this stuff. Uh, and and we get the we get the first instance of the lasso being used, and it's not for um, truthiness, to quote Mr. Colbert, or I guess Dr. Colbert. Um, it's it's quite literally used for its purpose, to lasso Zola, <laughs> and and it's not in any kind of um, condescending way. There's no condescension between the two of them. Uh, it's just yeah, yeah. I thought I told you to follow some orders, buddy. Yeah, maybe you should uh, listen to what I'm saying. 
And, you know, again, as this prophecy is just being talked about, you know, Hermes stumbles out, still has his gigantic arrow in his torso. And Diana's like, dude, it's, it's, <laughs> I got you. Like, we're going to figure this out. Everything's going to be good. He's like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you, man. But I think I'm, I'm not really long for this world, buddy. Uh, and it's the first name check of who this is, Hermes, because I genuinely didn't know who it was when I first read this. I, for some reason, I was just like, who is this guy? Like, weird bird guy. Um, I was going to go into, like, why are his feet talons? I love that. I love this image um, on page 22, the left middle panel. Just talons and, like, curled foot because he's, like, he's in pain. Like, it's just beautiful depiction. Um, but, you know, he's a messenger, and he's always seen as a winged messenger, so if he doesn't have wings like a... Um, I can't remember his name. Pegasus. There we go. If he doesn't have wings uh, akin to Pegasus, Pegasus is wax wings. But if he doesn't have wings like that, and he has wings instead either on his hat or on his ankles, then it would go, stand to reason that he might he must be part bird in one way, shape, or form, just being having the permutation manifesting itself in odd ways, um, i.e. The, the feathers coming out near the bone as opposed to near the muscle. That's usually because feathers, like hair, are for warmth and for water resistance. You wouldn't need that over the bone. You would need that over the muscles because the muscles have to stay warm so that the blood can continue to pump through them. You know, they've got to vibrate at, that, at a frequency that's allowed by body temperature of that particular animal. Uh, and I don't think it's 98.6 degrees. I, think, I believe birds are a little bit closer to being cold-blooded because they're they have a ancestral lineage to lizards so they're more towards um, reptiles than they are mammals so i think their blood is like 98 degrees or 97.6 something like that um, and then you know reptiles i think it's like down to like 90 i think it's, it's cold which isn't cold but it's colder than 98.6 degrees of the regular for humans which i feel like i should get into because that's just such a weird number um but yes, we get this revelation like, oh man, some big stuff is coming. Everybody's kind of, you know, Zola's got her pump action shotgun, good to go, freshly transported uh, back to her home in Virginia, or at least this, this abode that she was staying in. Hermes doubled over like, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> like, this gun just sucks. And Diana being like, yeah, um, okay, all this stuff is happening right now. I got to get my bearings straight. And then we see that the, the three women were not pushed off. They were turned into oracles, as it were. And we see this awesome effect of Apollo manifesting himself. And something is talked about here that I feel like I'm going to wait until the next issue to talk about. I just need to make a note about this because I really don't want to spoil it because that's a big twist. Because I totally didn't even realize this was a factor. Like, I realized it reading the graphic novel, but I had no idea that it was that it really was the case. Like, it's so obvious. But it's the case. And then the last page, something that the last girl says, it's like, wait a minute, what now? What? I don't even want to say, like, what I was going to say next. Like, it just, ah. Oh. This is a masterpiece of a first issue. A freaking masterpiece. It's beautifully written. It's beautifully drawn. Everything about it is immaculate. And it was because of Cliff Chiang's art. It was because of Brian Azzarello's 
dedication to these long arcs and the the characters that get introduced along the way. Like I said, I'm still reading it issue by issue. Like I'm, I'm going after I finish this podcast, I'm going to go buy the issue 35, which came out today. Amongst other things, there's quite a few other issues I need to buy, because um, I always buy comics every every Wednesday. Um, but it's just such an amazing series. This one woman series is amazing. Um, and and just in case you're somewhat unclear, I had spoken about Apollo earlier and Apollo's chariot. Um, he's normally attributed to the liar. L-Y-R-E, not L-I-A-R. You know, the tiny harp. Tiny harp given to him by who? None other than Hermes, if I'm not mistaken. No, it's Hermes. I don't know why I said it like that. It's from Hermes. I should have stuck to my guns. Um, he has a lot of weird stuff. He's, he's the son of Zeus. Uh, his twin sister is Artemis, who's going to come up again. So we're going to be talking about her much later. Um... And although he has been attributed to being the god of light and the sun and truth and prophecy, healing, plagues, music, poetry, um, it's, it, it wasn't until roughly around 300 BCE that Apollo kind of merged his, like his, his representation was merged with Helios. Apollo was the Latinate the Latin version, as, as it were. Even though Apollon, that was his name, Apollon, Apollon, that was his name in ancient Greek, uh, his attributes were a little bit more attributed to Helios. And there was this this merging of the two. Helios was a titan. He wasn't a god. He was a titan god. Like He was he was a titan, like the ones that come before the regular gods, like Zeus. And so, you know, he's the one that, like, his only service is whatever element he abides over, you know, whether, you know, so with those gods and goddesses like time, air, water, death, you know, not, uh, well, love is a part of that too, obviously, but not like, oh, god of bread or god of wine, like that kind of stuff is for the gods, the the titans, like kind of like the old gods, and that's pertinent, very pertinent for the DC universe, talking about old gods, and of course, subsequently new gods, won't even get into that, all I'll say Green Lantern series, go for it. Um, and stick with this series. Kind of a spoiler, but you know what I'm saying, peoples. If you're here now, you probably read ahead. But if you haven't, awesome. Go with the podcast. You can be getting this each week. So live your life and then come to this and listen to this and be like, oh, I didn't even know about that or I didn't think about that. And but Apollo, his, his background kind of melded with the Greek version of Apollo, as it were. That being Helios, the Greeks came first. So the Lat the Romans took that version of Helios and kind of melded them together and made him more of a sun god, Apollo, more of a sun god, and and a little bit less of a god that was just over, you know, like I said, excuse me, plagues and healing and, and music and poetry and more towards and, and you know, and prophecies and all that, and more towards just being a guy who was riding a chariot in the sky. And, and was responsible for all of life during the day. Um, I, I brought that up because of what we saw there, that at night he is obsidian black, he has no purpose. But as soon as, as it were, his chariot arises, um, what happens in the story ends up happening. And um, as, I've, as I've already spoken to, that brings us to the very end of this issue. Um, 
the, the first issue in a series that I just, I'm so happy to be going through again. I'm slowly taking my time with it because I want to relish in the awesomeness that is the Wonder Woman graphic novel. And my sincerest hope is that you will as well. Genuinely, it's just, it's, it's so amazing. And it's, whether you're a man or a woman or, you know, a transgender man or woman or you're a hermaphrodite, doesn't matter. Uh, to be able to look at a representation of power uh, and, and it not have to be something that is um, carrying around a phallus. You know, not saying that there's anything inherently negative or positive about that, but just that it's something else. It's somebody else that's powerful and isn't beholden to, you know, a, a male sidekick or isn't uh, the female sidekick of a male hero. Either way, um, that all of her, uh, well, for the most part, because we'll see that later, I don't want to spoil it, but most of her com compatriots, her compadres, are really compadras. You know, it's women. There's women standing up and fighting. There's is a huge arc that ends up this all of this is really all one arc three years spanning but there's a really big thing that ends up happening much farther down the line and it's just women standing up for each other man like, this is freaking awesome just this series is just it's it's a gargantuan feat to tackle one of the trinity in, in the dc universe and say yes we're going to retell this story not only are we going to tell the story we're going to retell the story and we're going to jump in in media res and later on we're going to get into her her history her origin excuse me excuse me oh man i really got to put some food in there um and and we do get to it if i'm not mistaken i know exactly which issue it is too and i don't want to say because i don't want you to read ahead and, and skip ahead past just go with the flow of the show man there's a reason why we started where we started and talk where we talk you know it's important it's a slow build slow build uh, but uh why is it the slow build? Uh, that's a horrible segue. <laughs> because of the theme, uh, Revelations. That's my belief. Um, this entire issue is about people finding out true purposes and being set upon a path that is considered their fate or their destiny. And that reconciliation as to whether they should accept that. That goes to what I was talking about at the beginning of this podcast, to, to complete the Aurora Bores. Uh, that you've got uh, Hermes doing what he's known to do and and coming face to face with death his own his own mortality as an immortal um as we'll find later uh zola well no no not even because it's not accepting a fate there's a revelation for zola i didn't give that away um there's a revelation for zola in this issue uh and and now her character having to come to terms with with all this information um Diana uh, finding that there's a lot going on with her siblings that perhaps she needs to attend to and pull away from uh, Earth's troubles. Uh, the revelation on the revelations rather on the final pages of this issue to Apollo uh, through these newly made oracles of of the of the status quo and what he needs to do now. And, and really, uh, the, the revelation that these gods exist, these gods and goddesses exist, and that they can be all-powerful, that we can have a Hera who can manifest these, these beasts from other universes, other 
really other dimensions because it's other planes of existence within the universe because it's not from a parallel universe it's from within this universe just look at the map for the multiversity do a google search for that multiversity like university but multiversity um chances are you don't have to do the rest but multiversity and then grant morrison if you type that in you'll get a map that has all of the dc multiverse like it's amazing it is it is awesome god damn it it's awesome um and and Hades or Hades, however you want to call it, is on there. Um, uh, Mount Olympus, uh, Apocalypse, New Genesis, um, the Rock of. Ooh, what is it called? It's not the Rock of Power. It's where the seven manifestations are for Shazam. Rock of Eternity, there you go. Oh, and it's Beowulf. That's the character I was thinking about earlier, Beowulf. Because the shining line is, oh yeah, Beowulf. Right. Beowulf is uh, the story with, he was the monster that came in to fight all the people and then he got killed and then the mother of Beowulf got mad, but she was the same kind of uh, creature and then came in and, and then they had to fight. Yes, there we go. Or rather, Beowulf ended up going to go fight that creature at her home place. Right, Beowulf. There you go. Couldn't remember it because the wolf is spelled W-L-F, not W-O-L-F. Anyway, um, there are so many different uh, universes and, and yeah, Rock of Eternity, awesome. So many different universes within this multiverse and it's just beautifully depicted in the multiversity map. Um, and it isn't even technically fully revealed yet, but you know, not trying to spoil stuff. Um, there's so much going on in this series, this Wonder Woman series, and it's so worth your time. It's so worth your your brain space. And as well, it's worth a few shekels, buddy. It's worth your, your coinage, you know, whether it be digital or analog, whether you're going to go to the store. And this is a full on retraction. I've been messing this up. I've been, you can, you can do searches, dccomics.com forward slash comics. Um, I normally had been getting it through the DC app and I didn't know if I was going to promote that, but I just realized how difficult it is to do it through, not difficult, but it's different rather, to the dccomics.com forward slash comics. You could just search and see which comics that come out, but it's so much easier. I'm gonna be doing it from henceforth. Just download the DC app, it's free. You can just get your comics through there. It's awesome. Just get your comics to the DC app. And literally just like in the search, you either type in DC app in Google, like a Google search or in the iTunes store, do a search DC app or DC comics. It's going to come up free app. It's awesome. It's got all the updates. Just go get it. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Go to your local graphic novel store, man, because they need your patronage. Like get to know them. They're awesome. If you read this stuff, if you listen to this podcast, you like the stuff, you got to keep that stuff going, man. Because if, if that media, if that media dies out, um, you know, then we're going to lose something amazing. You know, I think it should get to a point where they become more of a collector's item, kind of like how Wu-Tang Clan did it, where they released one album this year. It was so awesome. They released one album for like $100,000 or some, some crazy amount. But it's like sitting in a museum. And you could buy like the digital copies, but if you want that, you got to pay money for it. Like it's a rare, like a museum piece. That's the way it should be because it should get to that point. Not right now, but it should get to that point. It could be rendered on paper. However the artist likes to do their artwork. So whether they do it on paper or they do it digitally, that's cool. I don't want to step on those toes because you got to let the artist be them. But when it comes to the consumer, to make it where there's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of issues that are printed up and there's no definitive proof that they're all going to be bought, at a certain point, it's going to get to a point where it becomes trash. 
if it's not bought. And people will always be cool, especially now that we've got tablets and stuff, people will always be cool with being able to get a digital copy. So this shift that we're having towards the digital medium is a beautiful thing. But to upkeep graphic novels like the compendiums, the tomes, where you have a collection of issues and it's printed up, you know, so you could have like, cause, like I have um, in uh, my, uh, I was going to say dining room, in the living room, when you come in that, come into my house, I've got uh, the Justice graphic novels uh, that that were um, by, um, oh man, Alex Ross, painted by Alex Ross. And it was an amazing idea, like where all the superheroes and villains, pretty much damn near everyone on Earth, I'm pretty sure it's everyone on Earth, but definitely the superheroes have these nightmares where the world is falling apart and they cannot save it. Like, so they're really dying, like as if it's a Krypton scenario. So they attempt to fix it, but it doesn't, I don't even want to spoil anything. It's crazy, but it's beautiful because every page is painted by Alex Ross. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. Um, so I have that as a coffee table, table book and the first uh, graphic novel compendium for Justice League for the New 52. Because I got um, Jim Lee and Jeff Johns to sign the pages that I really, really liked. <laughs> so it, was just, it just makes it look like a cool coffee table book. It's just amazing artwork. Those graphic novels, and that's not from a selfish place. It's just I feel like that's art. Com comic books and graphic novels are sold. It's a, ve it's a very big difference. And they're just chapters. You know, It's like as if you're selling chapters of a book, but you know at a certain point you're going to sell the book. You know? It's like selling hardcovers, like making a million hardcovers, knowing you're going to make 10 million softcovers because people are going to buy all the softcovers. Make 10,000 hardcovers, make it super rare, knowing that the softcover, people are going to buy that because they want to put it in their bag. Uh, but that's me talking about the uh, lit literary industry. Um, I don't want to get too much into that, but I do think we're going to get to a more digital era and just have it as collectibles for hardcovers and trade paperbacks, stuff like that. Because you keep that stuff, that's cool. You want to be able to, you know something tactile it's just a it's a it's superficial yes but it just feels good it feels good the smell of the paper the feel of the paper um the pristineness of a new copy or a copy that's been barely touched it's amazing so the only way you can keep that going is to go be a patron to your local graphic novel store um for this show be it of truth be it uh the upcoming show all about lucifer from vertigo comics haven't even done the first episode yet i'm going to record it tonight so maybe record released tomorrow um, called The Morning Star or Constant Tome all about the Hellblazer graphic novel all pre-Flashpoint as is Lucifer it's pre-Flashpoint um, which will end up being 75 episodes The Morning Star uh, Constant Tome is going to be 300 episodes Jesus Christ um, and then you know it's all about the Hellblazer issues and then those individual chapters as it were in that Constant Tome huh? get the pun uh, at the end of the episodes now, since the show has started, because like I mentioned that podcast, I started the podcast two months before I read the news online that they were going to be doing a show in the fall for, you know, NBC, Fridays, 10 p.m., Constantine, check your local listings. Um, I still, I, I just fell into that and I can talk, talk about all that stuff all day and I do on that podcast. Um, but as well as Darker Corners, which is all Justice League Dark and Pandora and Phantom Stranger and Swamp Thing and the new 52 Constantine, which we're getting to. We're not at that yet. We're getting to it. There's a reason why this is pacing, because things bleed together. The issues bleed together. You cannot jump ahead. Patience comes to those who wait. That makes absolutely no sense, but it actually makes all the sense in the world. As patience is a virtue. Um, as well as Fair Play Pod, 
which has ended eight issues. I might do a special issue on the Future's End once it's done, but I'm not going to do a Future's End podcast because it's just it's so much going on. There's no way, no way. Because it's, it's amazing. Just go buy that. Future's End is amazing. If you want the continuing stories of Michael Holt, uh, Mr. Terrific, uh, that's all about quantum physics and the like. And Bennett and the Queen is all about vampirism and, and relationships, all that jazz. Um, but it, it's about the I Vampire graphic novel, which as well is only 19 issues. So it's only going to be 19 episodes. Um, you can get all that stuff. Just like do a search on iTunes. Put my name in, Nick Antoine, N-I-C space A-N-T-O-I-N-E. Nick Antoine. Just throw that bad boy in there. N-I-C space A-N-T-O-I-N-E. O-I-N-E, yes. A-N-T-O-I-N-E. I didn't have to remember that. I just felt like I didn't say it properly for you guys. Um, it pops up. All the podcasts come up. Even the old one, Ferryman Radio. I'm going to get to that one day. I gotta, I'm going to finish the movie first. I start production next month. Um, and by next month, I mean the month after next. <laughs> I just, I'm not thinking about October anymore. Like, I've got the Halloween party, the house party coming up, and I'm going to go to that, that weird club. But I did, like, this week is last week, so I don't count October anymore. Um, so December. Once December starts, that's when production starts for the the uh, bizarre cannibal movie. Um, but once that's over, which will be at the end of February, I feel like I'm going to start up the third season of Ferryman Radio. So if you like that, if you like the... Uh, the science fiction stories of the first season and the, the bizarre twist that it took into horror in the second season. We'll see where it goes in the third season. Who knows? Who the hell knows? The shadow knows. No, that was a that was a bad pull. That was awesome. I was thinking. I said the shadow, and for some reason, I was thinking the phantom. I love the shadow. I love that movie. The movie was awesome. The movie was awesome. Um, hell, Peter Boyle was a cab driver. You can't beat that. Alec Baldwin was a superhero, man. It was awesome. Um, and then, yeah, I did. I read that. Um, I read uh, Calvin's book, uh, Cairo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did the uh, audiobook. I pulled a U2. So each chapter is an episode, introduction, all that stuff. And then go to the ambers.org. The Ambers, like Amber from Jurassic Park. You know, like uh, the mosquito and the orange rock. The Ambers, because it's the Amber Company, so it's all that stuff. It's all my stuff. Um, I make contributions over there, because that's how I keep the lights on, is making this stuff for you guys so, totally free. And the people are like, oh, I really want to do that. Like, I'll give money for that. And then when it gets to a certain point, with a certain notoriety, because I don't know how many people are listening to this now, because I'm going to have to wait like a week to find out. But the other podcasts I collect, it's, it's a couple thousand, you know, the tens of thousands. Like, I'm kind of surprised it's all you guys listening to this stuff, and it's amazing. But when it gets to a certain point, it'll necessitate like, oh, I'll make some kind of weird merchandise. And then even then, I'm going to go the Wu-Tang route. I'm not going to make like hundreds of shirts. I'm going to make like two shirts. I think that'll be my thing. Like two shirts, two mugs, like weird stuff and sell them for weird prices. Like it's a, you know, a mug for $3.17 and then a shirt for $317, like weird numbers, you know, that are palindromes. They're the mirrors of each other, not necessarily palindromes, mirrors of each other, but having the decimal place moved around. Um, just so it's like collector's items. So collector's items from the shows. I don't. I don't want it to be like everybody's walking around. Everyone's got a goddamn Constant Tome shirt. I'd rather be paying attention to the Constantine show, NBC, Friday nights. <laughs> Check your local listings, um, or or reading the graphic novel Hellblazer, or reading the new Fifty Two Constantine. Um, and then that goes the same for all the rest of these graphic novels. It's about the graphic novels. Love the graphic novels. Don't love me. I'd rather you hate me and love the graphic novels. And that's what I'd rather. But like, even if you hate me, 
still like go give this show five stars because it's the only one this is the only show about wonder woman i saw episodes of other podcasts that talked about Wonder woman and that's cool that's cool because there's a light being shine, sh shown upon the character but there's nothing else out there and i'm kind of hoping somebody does a pre-flashpoint one because there's no way i could do it no way that's not it, never say never um i'm not gonna do it putting my foot down it's got a lot on my plate and my big my big task is constant tome that's my true passion john constantine i just love this character of um of, of diana you know just everything that this character embodies especially the new 52 so i figured i'd talk about that stuff but um you know give it crazy stars give it five stars that way it goes up and then people see it and then it refers to, to the other podcasts and then people are going out and getting the graphic novels and then there's more of a justification for these graphic novels to continue to be made so they never get canceled so not only y y you and, and and i as a generation can read this stuff but generations before us might be like hey yeah i'll check that out and then they get enamored by the awesome stories these modern mythologies these these modern grecian tales uh, or future generations just ways to live in a society that are, are portrayed through allegories of gods and monsters goddesses and creatures devils and angels demons and humans it's i don't want it to be a lost art and i'm trying desperately to keep it from being that way so you can do that give the show five stars and say something nice please be be cool please trying to end on something poignant but uh, I gotta go I gotta go eat something and I don't edit these podcasts I've said it before and I will say it again I don't edit them with the exception of the one for gouge away but it all kind of plays in in a very um transtextual way um if you listen to podcasts you read that graphic novel you know what I mean but it works for that to be the first episode that I've ever edited and there was reasons for it but I never edit these podcasts and I, I know I must be in like the 50s by now maybe pushing 60s when it comes to the amount of episodes across all the podcasts um, but I just not because like I refuse to do editing because I've been in the industry for years now um, I like editing stuff it's it's cool work but it's because I refuse to lie to you if something weird happens if there's a weird sound if there's an odd pause i address stuff i don't try and truncate anything um but again i'm not trying to downplay people that do you know they're doing the thing you know but as Lil wayne said doing your thing but things change you playing jane i'm diverse say the world second and i get high first <laughs> why did i quote that like of all things to quote on a podcast about Diana Themyscira, I quote Lil Wayne. There's got to be a better way to end this. A better way to end this. Um, I'm really happy that I actually did this. That's actually the truth. I'm actually really happy because it was a spurn of the moment idea on another podcast. I was like, you know what? I should do a Wonder Woman podcast. And I had this apprehension because I was like, oh, I'm a dude. I'm a straight dude. So there's going to be a lot of people that can be against that, you know. But it's because it was it just, it didn't exist. You know, and like the main theme of, of Wonder Woman, of Diana, I will capitulate if a better podcast comes along that's a better representation of the new 52 Wonder Woman. I will cease this podcast. Of truth will be no more.
But until someone tops what I can do and what I'm going to continue to do with all these podcasts, let alone this one, this won't stop. I will continue to try and be the best representation of a level-headed 31-year-old black American trying to live in this crazy, crazy world. And so, this has been episode one. I have been Nick Antoine. You have been... What's the best way to say this? I need a new thing to say. You have been... The kind listener. There we go. I like that. You have been the kind listener. No, you have been kind. You have been kind enough to listen. There you go. You have been kind enough to listen. Thank you for listening. Truly, seriously, thank you. Love each other unconditionally. <laughs>